Welcome to Plastic Model Mojo, a podcast dedicated to scale modeling, as well as the news and events around the hobby, where we hope to be informative and entertaining and help you keep your modeling mojo alive. doing tonight dave not too bad not too bad you know tell you what whatever troubles i've got they're they're nothing compared to what other people do so <laughs> i consider myself lucky how about you well interesting week this week coming out of the weekend uh to been dealing with the wife's detached retina repair so that's what's been going on behind the scenes but uh model sphere hadn't been too bad what's up in yours well uh to be honest with you i've <laughs> I've been on a little bit of a buying spree and and looking spree I, I, in relation to the Airfix Kate. Uh, that's really kind of piqued my interest, and uh, uh, I did some research and uh, found some some decals on Hannets, and uh, I'm inspired. I've got more. I've got more modeling ideas than I've got modeling time. Let's put it that way. <laughs> don't don't we all? Yeah, ain't that the truth? But uh, I have been jotting down some notes and and trying to arrange some things in my mind. Also, we've got our local club contest coming up in like three weeks, so I'm trying to get prepped for that. So it's a it's a flurry of activity, even if it doesn't uh, produce quite what I want it all to produce. How about you? Uh, well, a couple of things, and uh, if this recording stands for. Stands the record when I go to edit this. Uh, we will be recording on a new platform tonight. Well, we yeah. are. We'll, we'll see how that works. <laughs> and uh, big experiment. We've played around with it a little bit last week, but uh, we'll see where this goes, man. And then the other thing I've been on my KV85 project, we'll talk about that more later, but uh, I, I've been contemplating the shortcomings of that kit, you know, the wheel, the wheel engineering we talked about last time. Yeah. And then it gets back into this golden age of modeling thing, Dave. I, I, just, I just realized that the, the, the old original Tamiya KV, they didn't even have detail on the inboard side of the wheels anyway. <laughs> so. Count yourself lucky. Yeah, we've come a long way. So Yes, we really have. So a little deep thought and retrospection on, on the model sphere. That's right. Whatever shortcomings the current kit you're working on uh, has, if it's fairly modern kit, it's still going to be better than most of what we were dealing with in the seventies and eighties. That's right. Mike, uh, do you have a modeling fluid at hand? I do. Oh, I am drinking cold check pills. Funny name. It is from blue stallion here, right here in Lexington. I even got the right glass to drink it out of. So oh, a Pilsner glass. That's right. So, all right. I've never heard of them. Are they are they new? No, they're not new. They've been around for seven, eight years now, I guess. Hmm. I mean, I'm familiar with Country Boy and uh, what's the other big uh, craft brewer up there? Uh, West Sixth. West Sixth. That's right. What about you? I'm. I am still working my way through uh, the gifts that were gifted to us. Tonight, I am drinking Cedar Ridge, Iowa bourbon whiskey out of 
somewhere in Iowa, Cedar Ridge Brewery or Distillery somewhere in Iowa. I forget the name, the town name begins with an S, but uh, uh, I'm still working my way through the brown liquors we were gifted and uh, we'll give you a full report later, but so far, mighty nice. All right. As uh, tradition holds, the mailbag is rather full again. Well, that's good. Get my microphone situated so I can actually see it. <laughs> well, I got an interesting one next day after we dropped uh, the last episode. Okay. Paul Budzig wrote in, Scale Model Workshop. That's right. I remember yeah. that. Uh, and he just offered a little more insight, and a correction. You know, I, I credited, well, I gave a shout out to the current issue of Fine Scale Modeler last time. Right. And talked about how it had a little bit of a throwback feel to to the old, and I credit it all to Paul Boyer, uh, the the fine scale modeler from the mid eighties and uh, up right. into the nineties. The golden degree. years, the, the golden years are the original years. Uh, and he actually said uh, the credit for the early fine scale modeler character style and content is uh, the influence of Bob Hayden. Yes. Now, I think Bob Hayden was the editor of Model Railroad, Model Railroader magazine at that time, and and maybe, and Paul may he may write in again if I gaff again, but uh, uh, I'm not sure where he was in the hierarchy of of Kalmbach Publishing in its entirety, right? Right. But he's uh, Paul says that uh, Bob recruited all the original authors and kept in touch with them, so he made sure he had a steady stream of content coming in. And uh, he was also a scratch model railroader, H.O. Uh, Narrowgage, H.O.N. 3, uh, which there's never been a lot of commercially available stuff to support. So right. he was a scratch railroader. And under, he understood all these techniques that most people in the in the other genres of uh, plastic scale modeling thought were exotic. I know I sure did. So I appreciate that, Paul. And I appreciate you listening to the show as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, our friend John Vickis is written in. All right. How's JV? JV's doing fine. And I, I should have sent you these pictures. I don't know if I forwarded you these or not. Unless he copied you on there. I he did not. He... I'm sorry, but that's uh, all right. <laughs> Listener mail last time we were talking about organizing reference material. Right. Somebody wanted my tips on organizing, and I was definitely <laughs> the wrong person to ask. <laughs> well, he sent uh, pictures of his, his reference area. And no wonder his output slow. He's got to spend a lot of time organizing all this stuff. I was going to say, uh, I am sure that his stuff is collated, tabbed, indexed, re-indexed, cross-indexed. If I know JV, he he can lay here. In fact, I do know from our group group emails and group texts and such that if you mention a particular subject, he has the ability or a particular article in a magazine, he has the ability to just reach out and lay his hand on it. Uh, he is clearly amazingly organized. And if I can ever get him to visit Louisville, uh, I'll have him come down into the model room and see if he can impose a little order. <laughs> and be shocked. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, he goes on to drag me into this. Good, good. How do you organize references for military vehicles? That's a great question. 
He's not going to like my answer. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, typically, my references are organized when I can by publisher. By publisher? Yes, because I've got these little groups of uh, nuts and bolts books. I've got these little right. groups of... of uh, okay, I can... I can see that, like Squadron Signal, Osprey. I was going to say Squadron Signal and Osprey. I can see why you would keep all of those grouped together. Tanko Grad, AJ Press. Yeah, for another reason than and you know, so like the Russian, the old Russian magazines, Military Chronicles, and Military Illustrated. Yeah, uh, and I just in my headspace, I know. I can remember when I think of a subject, I can remember I've got something by, by a particular publisher. And you can remember who the publisher is. Yes. I know what the books are. And my, my, uh, my reference collection is not as exhaustive as, as yours, Dave. Well, <laughs> yeah, the library, the librarian of Congress looks at my model room and is in green with envy. Yeah. All of mine will fit on one three by six bookcase. Oh, God, I've got, I'm looking over my shoulder, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine or ten, depending on how you count. <laughs> yeah. Which, which makes me look at I, my mind's right here, just right off my peripheral from this mm -hmm. microphone. Is, uh, it wouldn't take much to organize them by spine heights because they're almost there already. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I have three main shelves. I have really tall, sort of tall, and then short. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, John, thank you. Um, how do I organize references on military vehicles? Not very well. That's what I was going to uh, say. Poorly. Poorly, yes. Because, you know, an issue I have is a lot of the books I have are, I have books, a lot of books on single Single things, single vehicles. Single subjects, yeah. Single se subjects. But I've, I've got some books that are, like the Tiagachi book from Tankograd covers every artillery tractor in the Red Army. So where do you put that one? <laughs> with, with all the other Tankograd books, obviously. You, you don't, I was going to say, you don't know where I'd suggest you put that one. <laughs> well, it's a big book, so it might yeah. hurt. Yeah, really. <laughs> Brandon Walters from Guelph, Canada. Bravo. Hey, I did it. You did it. And he says, apparently all the cool Guelph kids listen to the podcast. <laughs> so he should advertise that IPMS Cambridge is a 20 to 30 minute drive from Guelph. And it meets at Forbes Hobby every second Tuesday of the month at 7.30 p.m. There is, there is a certain advantage to having a model club that meets at a hobby shop. Uh, our local club here in Louisville did that for years. It's real conducive to to keeping the model juices flowing because uh, you get in there, you're meeting with a bunch of guys and, uh, you know, hobby supplies are close at hand. David Fuller from your wife's hometown, Indian Head, Maryland. Yep. He's written in before. Yep. Uh, he's one of many that wrote in due to my lamenting about the uh, catapult cable. I was going to say you got a, a really good listener response out of that. Uh, yeah, I got I got a huge one. Um, <laughs> apparently, he's a thread and cable collector. Really? Well, <laughs> I'm being <laughs> facetious, but uh, uh, he's got cotton, nylon, Kevlar, all kinds of stuff. So, David, let me uh, 
work up an email about exactly what I'm looking for. And uh, maybe we'll go from there. I'm thinking my upholstery threads might get it, but if I can find something just a little bit bigger, yeah, I might, uh, might see what you got. Did you, speaking of that, did you see my text to you today about the, the cord that attaches my key card to the little thing that hooks onto my belt for my office? Yeah, I've got one of those around here somewhere. And that, that it's, it's braided, but it's not fuzzy. It looks to be the right size. Might be worth taking a look at. Brad Ralston, same subject. And he wants to know if I've run across any of the cable from Anna's models out of Germany, I believe. I've never heard of them. Uh, he makes a lot of, I think they're resin cast switches and dials for cockpits. He makes them a lot of that kind of stuff in bulk. Hmm. Well, you know, like a, for instance, armor models always bought like little resin cast plaques with various styles and sizes of nuts and bolts on them. Right. Well, this is like cockpit toggles and that sort of thing. That's one of the things he does. Uh, he does more than that. But anyway, uh, he does have some metal cable in small and in an appropriate size too, I, I would add. So uh, Brad's right on spot with the uh, the size I'm looking for and the style I'm looking for. Problem with the metal cable is you just can't get enough tension in it when you manipulate it to get all the, to force it around tight corners and stuff. Gotcha. Now, if somebody knows a way to do it, shoot me another email, but, uh, I've tried to use it in the past. I've, I've wound my own with, with copper wire, which you, which is pretty malleable, right? Right. And if, if you get a kink in it or a curve in it, it really takes a lot of tension to straighten that out. Yeah. And it's just not something the plastic where your, your glue anchors are, aren't going to bear that very well. So, sure. So I kind of gave up on that, but, uh, it looked useful for some other stuff though. <laughs> Gary Sousmacat from uh, Williamsport, Pennsylvania. We haven't heard from him in a while, but uh, another suggestion, same subject. See, I told you, man, this is just three or four right here in email alone. I'm telling you, the the listeners, we can crowdsource our our needs, man. It's great. The hive mind. That's right. He says uh, he built uh, Model Ship Wade's Brig Niagara. Mm -hmm. And it came with some synthetic plastic rigging threads of various diameters. Now, being synthetic, they uh, don't have the fuzz like organic right. material, which is good. Which now, this uh, upholstery thread I've gotten is the same way; it's nylon, so it it doesn't have thread. But he right. says Model Expo uh, may carry it online, so I'll, I'll check that too. And uh, you're going to have such a thread collection when we're done with all this. Yeah, I'll have to submit it to a museum or something. There Donate you go. It. It's so like the world, you know, contact that museum that has the world's largest ball of twine. You know, they might be interested. Ah, Derek Post. Derek wants to know how that 12-year uh, modeling fluid he handed us well, was, that work, would, was working out. That, that would be your bailiwick since, since you won the arm wrestling contest for that one. Well, you've had it and I've had it. We know it's fantastic. Yes. So absolutely, he, he did us a solid with there, and uh, he did a super solid. And I mean, then then Dave did me a solid. Derek, uh, being a parent himself, he knew that us jetting away might. Well, we didn't jet this time, but our our travels and being away for four days sometimes causes some inconvenience back on the home front. So, and he knew my wife's a Scotch liker. 
one of the many wonderful things about her. So uh, that's largely in her possession, but uh, she appreciates it. And so did Dave and I. So <laughs> that's the way that one worked out. But uh, we, I really appreciate it. that was a, That was a very, very nice gesture. That, that was above and beyond. Thank you very much. Yeah. And I, I know some of the other podcasts might have. Might have gotten one of those too. So yes, I'm sure everybody's happy about that. And they should be. And if not, send it to me. <laughs> Hell, I'll take care of it. Well, we need to have you over the house. You can have a dram. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, appreciate that, Derek. And I appreciate that, Dave. Joel Middleton. And uh, I guess he's keying off my comments about Sprugu from Dr. Strangebrush's segment yeah. last episode. Joel wasn't the only one that made this suggestion. It wasn't long after that drop that Will Patterson got in touch with me and made a very similar suggestion with, with actually he went a little further with it, but uh, I can address them both right here. Joel is suggesting to add, and Will did too, to, to actually make the sprue goo with clear styrene. Really? Clear styrene is pure. It has no coloring in it. Right. And it, it has no other flow additives or anything in it. Gotcha. So it's inherently harder, which you should know cutting those things off the sprue. Oh, yeah. Right? Yep. It's like, oh, please don't shatter. Please don't shatter. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, the God hand makes that no longer a worry. Okay. I got to get mine still. I know. And he gets this stuff pretty thin. He says slightly thicker than normal to me a liquid cement, which I don't have the white lid one. I don't have that one. So I, I don't, I can't draw a reference from that, but uh, it's probably thinner than I've got it. Cause mine's more like Mr. Surfacer 1500. Hmm. And then Will suggested the, the clear sprue as well. And this makes, makes sense because it's, you're starting from a higher hardness. Yeah. So when it does dry, hopefully you're back where you, where you started to some degree. Hmm. Uh, Will suggested putting a drop or two of uh, a lacquer coloring in it, lacquer paint. Just uh, just to give it enough color for you to see it? Yes, exactly yeah. right. So, guys, I'm going to give that a try. I want to like Sprugu. Me it too. Seems, it seems really convenient, but uh, I get a big F so far. You and me both. I'm the same <laughs> way. Oh, here's an interesting one. Maybe you got an answer to this one. Now, he told me how to pronounce his name. Vili Mayhoff Garcia, and uh, Vili is a Chilean guy living in Ireland with a German name. <laughs> Globalization, baby. Uh, something like that. Now, he's a big fan of the show, and he's wondering if we, got, if we knew of any modeling books you can find in the digital format. Well, I know, I can tell you, uh, detail and scale, all of those are available in a digital format. Well, I, he didn't specify whether he meant reference material or actually like how inst- to inst- instructional and how to books. Hmm. As far as the how to, I can't see the problem is all of the how to books I own. I own actual physical copies. In fact, Mike and I were uh, prior to the podcast talking about my preference for actual physical copies of media. Um, the only downside, and this isn't true, like with detail and scale, you purchase the, the digital copy and you download it and it's yours and you have it. Um, but you know, I, I like having the physical media on hand, uh, 
And that's probably because I'm a dinosaur. If you talk to one of these modelers in their 30s who are uh, uh, doing Warhammer or Gunpla or whatever, uh, I'm sure that physical media to them makes no difference, but it does to me. But uh, at least in the reference arena, I know detail and scale, and I know um, scale aircraft modeling is available digitally. In fact, that's the way I get it now. Now, I'm, I'm sure he'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Chris Meddings just announced that some of his titles were going to be available in digital format. Oh, really? Now, his are, his, a lot of his titles are modeling related. Right, I, that's true. Like in fact, perf- I think he mentioned some titles in the last SCU. Uh, so I'm sure he'll chime in. Not now that I've said that and said it straight, and we'll uh, we'll have to send Billy his way. Uh, sure, maybe something there would be of uh, interest to him. Raymond Legrant, he's been watching the videos and stuff from the IPMS Nationals and other larger shows like Wonderfest. After watching all this stuff, with what he says is a keen eye for detail, uh, he says a few of the entries were the same kit, but by the same person. You know, going from show to show. Yeah. So the question is. Are there some models who take their builds from show to show to show who travel the country based on where the next show is? And then also what are the requirements for a local show or entrance disqualified if they travel a distance? So, well, let's answer the last question first. When we say a local show, we're typically talking about an IPMS invitational show. Right. Uh, and that would be, and there's a few amp shows as well that are, that are small like that. These are shows usually put on by a local chapter within the IPMS or even possibly amps, I guess, uh, that no, they draw from the surrounding area. A commutable distance is going to come to that show. And, uh, that's kind of your basic modeling show that the entries are typically going to be in a few hundred typically. And it's going to be a one day thing. Yep. And normally you're attracting people from a Four, four and a half, five hour tra- round traveling distance. Yeah. So that, you know, they can drive four hours in, attend the show, and then drive four hours home and be home late that evening. And I'd say most people are driving less than that. Oh, yeah. I would say yeah. the vast majority are driving less than that. And, you know, a lot of them have a. Decent vendor selection and maybe food on site sometimes, and you just never know what you're going to get. Um, like our show coming up in September, we've talked about it. It's it's put on by the Military Modelers Club of Louisville. It's going to draw from our region, but we're kind of on the southern border of our region. Right. So we get a lot of not only Region 4, but some Region 3 and Region 5 folks yeah, for so, those who are familiar with the IPMS regions. So we'll get folks from like the greater Nashville area. Um Knoxville, probably. I hope, hope those guys come up. Yes, and, I do uh, too. Indy, Indy, Cincinnati. Yeah, well, those are in our region. Uh, as far as people going from show to show to show, well, there's really two questions there. Yes, do people do go from show to show to show? You'll you'll see, you can see similar entries going from shows within the region. Yes. I don't think there's an IPMS rule about winning at more than one invitational, is there? No, there is not. There is no... Uh, about the only rule in this regard is that most local shows have a rule that 
you shouldn't enter a model that won a first place at a previous IPMS national show just simply from the standpoint. And that's, that's even that is local preference, but that is about the only rule that you generally see. It's not forbidden to go from show to show to show with the same entry in the same year, because if you're a, a slower builder like I am, you know, you oh, may thank you. Finish. I thought you were going to go for my no, throat. No, 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 I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling generous. Uh, you know, I may attend three shows, say, Indy, Louisville, and Cincinnati in a given year, and I may show the same model because I haven't finished a lot more models. As long as my general rule, and there's not even a, a rule that forbids this, but my general rule is that I will only enter a model in a show once. I won't take the same model back a subsequent year. Now, most show, local shows have a rule that say, if you won previously with the model, you can't enter that same model in our show in subsequent years. But you no, know, I've entered the same model in two or three different local shows. Now, I'm going to ask, because the question here has been, put forth we also have regional shows in the ipms which are a little bigger right sometimes not all the time sometimes it's just it's regional by title alone but more often than not though they are bigger and they're typically a day yes. and a half day and a half show help me understand this one dave because i don't okay. remember i should remember because he used to be chief judge <laughs> yes if if a model places at a regional show can it go back down to an invitational show? Again, depends on the local chapter because uh, uh, IPMS USA does not impose its rules on local shows because it doesn't financially provide for them other than insurance, so it doesn't try to control them. But most invitationals will... Many invitationals, I won't say most, many invitationals take the attitude is that if you won at a regional, you shouldn't take that same model and compete down at an invitational. That's why the rule is generally if your model won at the IPMS nationals, you shouldn't then take it to a regional or local show. But right. all of those are very local chapter specific. There are some chapters just don't care. The, you can bring anything because the results are going to be different because these models are all judged by humans and different day, different models, different judges, different results. Now, I will tell you that personally, I'll only enter a model in three contests and then I retire it. Uh, simply because people get tired of seeing it. Uh, so that's my general rule. And I know most, many modelers have similar self-imposed rules, but they're, they're just personal, not dictated by rule. And then finally, are there those who travel the country based on where the next show is? Oh, man, Dave. <laughs> oh, Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh yes there are i think to the exact 
extent of the way this question is worded, they're few and far between. Yes. And the ones we've run up against in, in our modeling careers are those, some of those guys are, they're full on nutters, man. Yes. They're special people. <laughs> God, what was that guy's name? Oh God, I can't. He may be remember. listening. So yes, that's right. <laughs> Tell the yeah. story. Oh God, I, uh, the, the abbreviated version. The abbreviated version is: guy shows up at our model contest with a auto junkyard diorama, gargantuan, uh, gargantuan, like four and a half feet by four and a half feet. Not particularly skillfully done. Does not win. He might even got a certificate of merit. I don't remember. That's back when we were doing those. Uh, did not win an award. Was very upset that he didn't win an award because he had won awards previously with the same model. And allegedly, according to the story he told one of our club members, he was living out of his van, traveling from model show to model show, entering this exact same model in shows week after week, wherever he drove to, which is really, really kind of weird. And that's, that's gotta be a tough life. Cause that, that model show purse, man, it's, yes. it's not, it's not like golf or horse racing. That's right. You're, <laughs> you're not, you're not winning money. <laughs> uh, and then it came to a cat- cataclysmic end. Yes. Allegedly, at a show, I think it was in South Carolina, he threw the diorama across the model room. Wow. Yeah. I hope that's true. I, it, that, it lives on as legend. I, it's one of those things that's too, too good to, to, to fact check. Well, Raymond, that's probably way too much information, but uh, <laughs> that's how the shows work from the way we see it. Yep. Good, bad, and ugly. And you know what? Ultimately, the the contest portion is the least important part of any show. It's hanging out with modeling friends, old and new. Lou Nigro from Crossville, Tennessee. He's written in before. Yep. And he's wondering if I've looked at Easy Line for my catapult rigging, and I have. It's all too small in diameter. Yep. But he says he's also heard of... Uh, Wonder wire or even super thin brass wire for rigging might be worth a try. That's a little. Now I, I've been calling this rigging. It's really a cable. It's the cable. Right. It's, the, it's the launch cable. It's not like supportive rigging on, on a biplane, but uh, right. Uh, Lou, stay tuned. We got a little, little bit of information about uh, using wire for rigging from our guest. He might yep. drop, drop that in a little bit. Cause I think Dave asked him about it, but uh, I, d- I did. Got to wait on that for a little while. Branson Smith from Charlestown, Indiana. Is that where that other hobby shop is? Uh, it's up. Yeah, it's up in that area. Uh, he's a helicopter mechanic, and well, he's hoping to see us at the MMCL show. But he's got uh, he's got some uh, army army duty. Oh man, bummer! Uh, during that weekend, so he won't be there. But uh, thank you for serving our country. He's he's wanting to know why there's not more catapult or catapults. He's wanting to know why there's not more <laughs> helicopters. Because helicopters are difficult as heck to build. Uh, there are plenty <laughs> of helicopter kits out there, especially in 72nd scale. You go to the IPMS Nationals, you'll see 
plenty of helicopters in the helicopter categories. And I will be honest with you, I am in awe of these people because helicopters combine the most difficult parts of aircraft and armor. Um, it's an interesting way to put it. It, it, they are, I mean, there's a bunch of helicopters I want to build. So far, I have been just a complete, well, I won't say that. I've been coward. A coward. Thank you. <laughs> coward. It's better than, than the word I was going to use. Yeah. Uh, I've been a complete coward about building them just because they are so complex, particularly to get looking very, very good. Um, if you've never been to an IPMS national, go to the IPMS nationals. If you're a fan of helicopters, you will see stuff that is flat amazing. Well, I think he's a 48 skill guy. And I'm wondering, is it light and 48 scale versus? It's lighter than 72nd scale, but there's still plenty of 48 scale stuff to keep you occupied. In fact, there's heck there's. A lot of 32nd, 35th scale stuff. Now, you're at that point, you're talking some big, big helicopters, kits. Well, there's one I wish would get re released. And uh, who was it? Oh, it was Grant Mayberry. Was, uh, he posted something about who was it? Paracel Miniatures out of, out of Vietnam just released some 35th scale uh, Helleborn infantrymen, like clamoring yep. out of a UH 1. Yep. And well, right now there's no UH1D and 35th scale on the market, <laughs> right? So I don't know why they did that, but hopefully it'll it'll inspire for that kit to be released because I had one and sold it. I didn't know it was going to be so short lived, <laughs> and uh, it didn't last long. So yeah. Anyway, helicopters. There's plenty out there. I've yep. got one to stash. Good. <laughs> well, Dave Michael Karnak is back from New York City. Oh, what's the question this time? With our question, he says his eyeglasses recently broke and his local optometrist was unwilling or unable to fix them. And he knew he needed to get a new pair, but he thought he'd have a go at fixing them with some styrene rod and assortment of uh, <laughs> stuff. And uh, using his optivisor, some tweezers from his modeling bench, he managed to do a pretty decent fix. So he was tempted to forego getting a new pair for a while. Now, it leads him to question what modeling tools or accessories or maybe even kit parts have we ever used to arrange for a real-life fix or a serious issue? Now, he says he's not going into using his Zuron plastic sprue nippers for keeping his toenails manageable. Oh, no. <laughs> but they work great for that task. <laughs> well, I can tell you, I can tell you one that I can think of off the top of my head that I've probably done more than any other. And now keep in mind, I live in a household with three women. Uh, I have some uh, modeling tools that are basically double-ended uh, dental picks, or they look like them that you can use. They have a number of modeling uses, but the biggest non-modeling use for them is if your wife or daughter have very fine necklace chains that get knotted or tangled using one of those things is great that and, a, and an optivisor allows you to untangle 
those those type of chain necklaces and uh i get i get a lot of bonus points with both the wife and the daughters from doing that mine's kind of in keeping with his it's not eyeglasses but i dug into the styrene stock and we've got a food processor that uh has got all these mechanical interlocks on it you know so it won't run unless you have the right the the, the container turn the right way and then the lid won't go on unless you twist this this way right and one of the interlocks had broken and the, it was a little pin that was on a, a little cam that would engage when you rotated the the main container of the food processor over to the closed position sure so it just happened to be the same size as one of my larger evergreen styrene rod stocks <laughs> so the food processor is still going strong. And that's been like three years ago now that I fixed that thing. That's great. Yeah. So there you go, Mike. Yeah, we've done it. I bet yes, we all absolutely. have. And I'm sure, yeah, almost everybody has. Well, that's it for the uh, email side of listener mail. Dave, what's been going on on Facebook Messenger in the last couple of weeks? Well, Any, uh, anything good? Yeah. There's constantly stuff good. I'm going <laughs> to go through them relatively quickly. Um, Keith Piper, uh, reached out to us to suggest that we travel to the desert Southeast and or Southwest in November because model zona 2022, uh, model contest in Mason, Mesa, Arizona is being held. It's on November 5th, 2022 from 9am to 5pm. And he'd love to see us get out there. While I don't think we're going to make it this year, I do love, I love some Arizona, New Mexico, love that area of the country. Uh, so who knows that maybe not in 2022, but at some point in the future. I have a strong suspicion that uh, at least Phoenix is a uh, Southwest Airlines primary destination. It is indeed is. And <laughs> I've gone to the nationals via Southwest several times. Uh, Tim Cavalier reached out uh, just to shout out Dr. Strangebrush. After uh, listening to the last episode, he went out and actually did what I did, ordered a couple of those AK strainer cups along with some other stuff and uh, got his order quickly. And uh, uh, as he is wont to do from time to time, Dr. Miller threw a few things in as a bonus, and uh, Tim just wanted us to know he was most pleased with his interaction with uh, Model Paint Solutions. Damian Rigby reached out just to make us jealous by showing us a picture of his modeling fluid, which was the Kraken Black Spiced Rum. Hmm. And it is sitting next to a, what I am pretty positive is a World War One engine in that's that's gotta be 30 second scale is my guess. And boy, it's beautiful. He did a fantastic job on this engine. You wouldn't know that it wasn't a real like an RC aircraft version of the engine. The the painting on it is fantastic. I'm, in fact, I'm going to steal this photo and and post it up on uh, our our Facebook page because it's 
He's got it's pretty nice. Yeah, it's got all the uh, the heat color shift of the steel. Yes, which is really hard to do. Good job. Yeah. Finally, uh, one to mention Adam Jackson, who recently reached out just to say he's been listening and thanking us for the uh, podcast. He actually is one of these people who went back to the beginning and is working his way through. He says he's about five months behind. Well, I hope he's keeping up current. Uh, I think he is because he mentioned some stuff as well, but he uh, expressed his uh, thoughts for you because he dropped his his child off at uh, college, just like you have, and knows how 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 much of a, a stressor that can be. Well, we're just thankful it happened before the detached retina. Yes, yes, that would have been <laughs> that would have been mom bad. wouldn't have got to participate. <laughs> yes, that would have been bad. That would have been a bad weekend. Yes, it would have. So, but yeah, keep those uh, Facebook Messenger messages coming or. Email us at plasticmodelmojo at gmail.com. We, the, again, I've, I've said it so many times, I'm a broken record. The best part of doing this podcast is the interactions that we get with people out there listening. And, and Mike and I are able to do things like crowdsource problems or get tips and tricks that, frankly, we wouldn't know about if somebody didn't point them out to us. This is the point in the podcast where I ask you, when you're done with this podcast, please take a moment on whatever podcasting app you're using to stop and rate us. We'd appreciate it if you give us five stars. It helps the algorithms to push the podcast up and become visible to more people. Also, if you are friends with a modeler who isn't currently listening to our podcast or podcast period when it comes to modeling, please point out our podcast. Uh, personal recommendations are the best way for us to grow the podcast. It continues to grow because of people like you and Mike and I appreciate it very much. That's right. And there's a lot of other folks out there who appreciate you tuning into them. Uh, you can check out all our fellow podcasters out there by going to modelpodcasts.com. That's a consortium website set up with the help of Stuart Clark of the Scale Model Podcast, who just turned over their 100th episode, by the way. Uh, yes, he did. So congrats on that, guys. And if you want to see all, let's see, if you want to listen to all these other podcasts, Go to modelpodcast.com. It's modelpodcastplural.com. You'll find a banner link to each and every podcast who's chosen to participate participate in the cross-promotion. So check it out, modelpodcast.com. In addition to that, we've got a lot of blog and YouTube friends out there, as do uh, the other podcasts. But uh, our particular favorites are uh, the Scale Canadian TV, Jim Bates. His uh, YouTube vlog always uh, got something humorous to say. Yep. Sidekick Cornbread. We've also got Sprue Pie with Frets with Stephen Lee. Now, Stephen Lee, he was out there having lunch with JB or dinner, and hopefully, I hope he got back around to uh, the Chicago area and got to check out our friends, hopefully our friends, at Three Floyds Brewery. Yes, we need to we need to circle back with him on that. Chris Wallace, my lure playmaker, great blog, great YouTube channel. 
He's been on vacation for like eight months now, so he hasn't yeah. hasn't done much. So isn't Chris, that what uh, happens in in countries like Canada? They you know they take eight months of vacation and then they they work for four months and then they take another eight months. Yeah, it's kind of like France, isn't it? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> and then last but not least, well, maybe it's seventy second scale. <laughs> hey, <laughs> Jeff Groves, Inchai Guy. Check out Inchai Guy blog. And we're going to check out Inchai Guy at our Invitational in Louisville, I hope. I hope he shows Absolutely. up. Absolutely. He better. Yeah. He will. All things 72nd scale. Inchai Guy. Well, Finally, if you would, take a moment. If you're not a member of your IPMS national chapter, IPMS USA, IPMS Canada, IPMS Australia, Norway, wherever you happen to reside, please consider your joining your national chapter. Uh, IPMS is an international organization made up of chapters, uh, national chapters in each country. Uh, they do a lot to cross-promote the hobby. Um, IPMS USA supports not only the national, but the regional contests uh, in, in the United States. Canada does the same thing. Um, they are great organizations staffed fully by volunteers who take their modeling time and give up some of it in order to run the organization. Um, please consider joining. I'd consider it a personal favor. Well, Dave, let's take a short break here and have a word from our sponsor. That's good because I'm going to need a refill. Plastic Model Mojo is now brought to you by Model Paint Solutions, your source for harder Steenbeck airbrushes, David Union power tools, and laboratory-grade mixing, measuring, and storage tools for use with all your model paints, be they acrylic, enamels, or lacquers. Check them out at www.modelpaintsolutions.com. Well, Dave, we are back, and it's time for Come and Make It in Texas. We got just a brief update. We're not going to harp on this too long. But it's still the one singular most important piece of information for the 2023 IPMS National Convention in San Marcos, Texas, is the opening of the room block registration, which is going to be on September 3rd at midnight central time. Yep. So once again, we're going to remind you to set an alarm on your phone, on your clock, however you do it, cuckoo clock, grandfather clock, whatever you do, you don't want to be an East Coast guy. Or a central time guy and go to bed and forget about this. Absolutely. Because you're not going to get a room at the venue. Yep. If they sell out quick. So until then, let's uh, move on, Dave, to the Benchtop Halftime Report. All right. Benchtop Halftime Report from Tackett Z. Tackett Z, the must-have tools for the model maker. You can see what Ed's up to at www.tackettz.com for all his 3D printed accessories for your workbench. And he's working on some new stuff. Uh, I asked him a couple of questions, and he's working on a product that uh, I asked him to take a look at. So hopefully we're going to get to see that soon, too. All right. Well, until then, Dave, what is on your bench now? There are a lot of things on my bench. The only thing that's made the progress in the last two weeks is the Airfix Kate. Uh, I have no excuse for the B-52 not being done. Uh, I am a, a total failure when it comes to that, but I've been focused on this Kate. It's kind of occupied my attention, and I've made progress. I'm just about to button it up. 
I like the way it's looking. I've used uh, um, some technique, even though the interior is going to be closed off and covered, there's not going to be an open canopy. I played with some techniques uh, in the interior because I wanted to get some practice in for some future models where I plan to practice or to d display the, the aircraft model with an open canopy. So I'm trying to sharpen those skills. Uh, I'm, I'm loving the kit. I think the Kate is, I mean, it's not flawless, but again, price to value ratio Airfix does very, very well. So how about you? Well, in addition to trying to source the right cable for my catapult so I can get that one back on the stinking bench, I've been slogging through this Bronco KV-85. I'm still not quite where I wanted to be at the end of weekend before last. Well, you've had some life things intervene. That's true. That's true. Uh, I've just about got the lower hull tub done. I've got the final drives on it. I've got all the towers for the return rollers, all the bump stops for the swing arms. I've got the idler wheel uh, adjustments on and I've got the rear, the rear curved rear armor on it. Mm -hmm. And now I'm just trying to figure out how I'm going to work past this next little Easter egg I've found. Which is? The taillight on a KV series tank is this tube that sticks out horizontal off the rear armor. Gotcha. On this kit, it's too long by a fair amount. Okay. And it kind of screws up how the the intake screen up under the rear tur rear hull overhang right interfaces with it and then there's a uh, basically an air deflector that fits in the vicinity of this tail light and forms a scoop for the air intake on the back of the tank mhm mm yeah i've got to shorten this thing i got to figure out how i'm going to do it because it's already glued to the back of the tank and i don't know man i'm not sure what i'm going to do there so i got to figure that out it's not as simple as just snip it off and make it shorter uh, it, well, it's gotta be, it's gotta be square on the end. Right. Right. So that's the hard part. Now there's a false floor in it that I think I can clip down to that and just sand it flush with that. And I may be all right, but, and this kit's got so many parts. <laughs> this tail light, they want you to put a clear plastic lens down this hole. Then over that, you put the late style tail light cover, which only has two tiny holes in it. Now, in real life, these holes are probably a half inch in diameter. Gotcha. But in a in a convoy situation, it would let enough light come out that you could see the vehicle ahead of you. Right. In 35th scale, I don't even know why you put that clear piece underneath it because it's just no yeah, way. you would you would never see it. <laughs> you can't see it. So yeah. Um, you know, I'm hoping to do a a a build review video of this thing. So I'm I'm taking notes and and still photographs and marking up the instruction sheet. And, uh, you know, if I can get this, well, if I can get it finished for starters, you will eventually finish it. <laughs> uh, you know, there's a lot of information here. There's a lot of, a lot of tips and, and little, uh, nuanced things and Easter eggs that, uh, the next, the next guy building that could benefit from. So I'm, I'm hoping to, collect all that and, and, and make something of that. So, well, and those are the things when you find them online, when you're about to start the kit that make you eternally grateful to the modelers that come before you and do all of that and then bother to publish it. So 
you don't have to go through what they went through. That's so true. Exactly. Right. I, hi- I highly recommend if you're thinking about starting any particular kit, go to YouTube, put in the, you know, Airfix B5N2 and you, you'll be, I mean, in this case, there's a dozen or more videos that pop up uh, where people have done the builds and, and they point out pitfalls and things like that. And, those things save you modeling time by them having done it. Well, a lot of this, what I'm doing now is portable right over to the SU-152 kits from Bronco, which I think are probably a lot more popular than this one. Right. Just by, well, I don't know. They've made more of them. It was used more often. A lot more, yeah. Yeah, so it's probably a more popular subject. But anyway, if you go out there right now, all you can find is all these softball in-the-box reviews from you know 10 years ago. Right. And I think something else needs to be needs to be done. So maybe well, I'll be the one that does it. I that's, don't know. That's, that's good of you to fill that particular void. Well, we'll see if it happens. <laughs> uh, other than that, I've not been doing a whole lot. That, I mean, yeah. I, I've been modeling not quite a bit, I would say. I'm just slow and I'm meticulous and I'm, I'm making notes and, and working my way through this thing. But uh, certainly not the... Uh, Clean slate builds the posse you're doing. Yeah, well, you need to you need to solve that cable problem so you can get that uh, you know, Paul back up in front and and get that. Well, across, I know because I, I just want to start painting that thing. Yeah, I'm excited to get it going on it, but I just I just can't. I, I know if I start painting it now, it's going to make problems later. Right. Until I get this all fixed out, fixed well, and 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 figured out. So. You, you need to take a look at all the suggestions you got, work through all that stuff, uh, and, and see if there's a solution out there, because uh, I want to see you get that one across the finish line. All right. Well, that's all I got, Dave. All right. All right. Well, um, at this point, uh, there have been announcements. Things have, uh, are coming out at it seems like to me an increase or at least being announced at an increased pace. What are the faves and yawns that uh, you've seen over the last say 30 days or so? I may get my yawn out of the way first. Okay. It's a, it's a palate cleanser. <laughs> what the yawn? Yes. <laughs> it's a general yawn. Okay. Not a specific yawn. Uh, it seems over the last two weeks, month, that uh, the lion's share of armor releases have all been either paper panzers or some IP-related fantasy things that I have no clue what are. Right. And I've seen these things popping up, and everybody's like, ooh, yeah, I'm going to get that, I'm going to get that, can't wait to build that. And I'm like, really? <laughs> but that's me, Dave. Yes, I know. They did. Every, every time I criticize one of those, uh, you know, paper panzers or napkin Luftwaffe 46 things, I have to acknowledge that while they're not of interest to me, and I do find myself frustrated that, you know, this thing is being produced instead of getting a new 72nd scale privateer or something, I have to acknowledge that clearly the market's at work and there is a market for those things, even if I'm just not it. Or me either. Yeah. Well, what do you got up first? Oh, man, I got a lot of stuff. There's so dang much stuff. First things first, 
at the IPMS USA Nationals. Kinetic, a couple of years ago, had announced that they were going to do a 72nd scale C-17 Globemaster. And because of the fact that Air National Guard units are one of my areas of interest, there are a number of Air National Guard units that operate these things. It's a it's going to be a big honking model. But I, I've been anxious to the point where I was distraught that they, after announcing it, you never heard any more about it. However, at the IPMS Nationals, they did confirm that the C-17 is still in the production pipeline and that we will get the kit in 2023. Now, I'll believe it when I see it, but it gives me hope that they're still talking about it. Most of my armor-related stuff was in the yawn category this this two weeks. Okay. Or this month. This is a monthly thing, I guess, this right. segment. Uh, I'm going to get in your lane a little bit. All right. Feel free. Come on over. AZ Models. Yeah. Has a new tool, the Heinkel 162 Volksjäger series. Yes. They, they're doing a complete series of them. Yeah, that's that'd be a fun one. That that is an intriguing aircraft for an aircraft that got exactly one kill, one confirmed kill in the entire war, um, and probably was not operational more than a few weeks or a month at most. It's cool looking. It's futuristic looking, and and I've always liked it. Although apparently it was a complete bear to fly. So I'm gonna get my eye on that one, maybe. Well, good. Come on over. The water's fine. Well, ClearProp announced the uh, they're doing a MiG-23 series, and they're starting yeah. with, a, with a MiG-23 MLA, which is a Flogger G. Now, this is really, in the, in the scheme of things, one of the late, latest and last MiG-23s done. But I am hopeful that they're going to do the complete family because we really need a good family of MiG-23s. I'm interested in a MiG-23MF, which is like a Flogger C, I think. B, Flogger B, Flogger C. But at least A, ClearProp does great models. They've announced the the MiG-23. While this version isn't the one that I'm going to be first out of the box on, it gives me great hope that we're going to see all of them eventually. Well, that's right up your wheelhouse. Oh, absolutely. It tickles everything. Well, this one's another kind of general one. There is a, and it's kind of in keeping with our guest segment tonight. There's okay. a lot of resin cast and 3d printed 72nd scale figures coming to market. Yes, you're stealing my thunder. I was going to mention some of these too. Uh, well, if you have some names, go ahead. But just in general, generally speaking, uh, these things are starting to show up almost like 35th scale 3D printed tracks. Yes. So uh, any, any standouts for you? Well, MIG Ammo is doing a set of German troops from World War II, offset scale models is doing Japanese Navy deck crew and fighter yeah, pilots. Yeah, that's the one I saw. <laughs> uh, in addition, there's uh, White Stork Miniatures. Yep. Is doing a bunch of uh, uh, different 72nd scale releases. Uh, yeah, Ammo is doing German infantry on the March winter uniforms. 
I, you know, we were talking with Steve Hustad and talking about the difficulty in finding good figures in this scale and talking about how, by the same token, 72nd scale armor seems to be experiencing a real renaissance. And I think that's probably going to bring along with it 72nd scale figures. And we're going to just see more and more of this. So I am super pumped to, to see some of these things. I'll go, I'll go one more. Okay. And once again, man, I'm in your lane. Feel free. I I don't know why this one interests me. Okay. And maybe it's on your list. Okay. Roden has announced an AJ one Savage. Yes. That's a big, ugly freaking airplane, but it is. I mean, <laughs> twin engine nuclear bomber flying off a, a, a 1950s carrier. I mean, just it, well, it's, it's it's more than twin engine. That thing had a stinking jet yes. engine in its rear end. Yep, absolutely. Um, this this does two things. One, it fills a a gap for our. Uh, naval aircraft friends. I'm sure the model geeks will be thrilled to see this. In addition, it will once and for all put a stake through the heart of the terrible Mach 2 kit of the AJ-1 because the only other injection kit of the Savage ever done was a kit by Mach 2 that... Is just awful. Pretty much everything Mach 2's <laughs> ever done was awful. Uh, you know, they'll change the name to Mach U. Mach U, yes, that's because that's what they're doing when they take your money. So the fact that a Roden uh, is a Ukrainian company, good to yeah, see that's Ukraine. True. That's right. Good to see Ukrainian companies continuing to produce and announce kits. Uh, you know, despite all the all all the difficulties over there, this is sorely needed. Uh, now, if Roden would do a privateer next, I would be most appreciative. But again, they're filling a hole, and again, they're they're making it much less likely that anybody is going to fall for buying a Mach Two kit. So that's win, 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 win all around. That's all I've got. That's all I've got as well. All right. Well, since we've mentioned by name already, Dave, we had a really nice conversation with Steve Husted uh, for this episode, talking uh, a little bit about his contest success at the national convention and also uh, some strategies and tips and techniques for 72nd scale figure modeling, because uh, he certainly addressed the shortcomings of this scale as far as figures are concerned head on and yes. just with, with uh, brilliant results. Yep. So let's get into that. Well, Dave, we've got a repeat guest that I'm sure we're going to have a lot of interesting things to talk about. Why don't you introduce our guest again? Uh, our, do I have to put any sort of honorific in front of your name now? You know, <laughs> world-renowned modeler, uh, uh, national champion, or maybe have you been knighted by the queen? No, I get that uh, at home a lot, but you know. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Congrat! You're, you're going to have to tell me how that works. Uh, our guest tonight is Steve uh, Husted, who uh, uh, is a guest we've had on before. A modeler whose work I admire a whole lot. Uh, a modeler who works in God's one true scale, seventy second scale. Although he has done 
35th scale figures and, and other stuff as well. And uh, the last time we saw Steve was in person at the Nationals. Right? Yep. <clears throat> it was a lot of fun, too. It was a great, uh, a great week, as it always is. So, It was a particularly good Nationals. I had a lot of fun. Uh, it's one of the, I've attended 26 or 27 of these things. Uh, it was really fun, but I suspect it was a little more fun than you, for you than for me. Uh, let's get this out of the way right up front. Uh, do you have something to tell our entire audience? Uh, well, no, it's just, just that uh, the first night at the Nationals at the Mojo Dojo was a lot of fun. <laughs> no, I mean something where somebody told you something and you didn't believe them. And oh, yeah. I think, to... Oh, yeah. Well, somebody named Dave kept telling me the whole week, uh, told you so, or I told you, or this is going to happen. Yep. <laughs> so, so I guess so, I, 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 like you said uh, before we started, I guess there's sometimes during this interview I have to tell you, Dave, you're right. You're, you told you. me so when you were right. Thank you. What I told him was that his uh, Friedrichshafen tri-wing scratch-built 72nd scale World War One aircraft was not only going to be, win best aircraft, but that it was a contender for best of show. And Steve, if any of the listeners don't already know by now, having seen the results of the Nationals from Omaha, uh, Steve won both Best Aircraft and the George Lee Judges Grand Award. And uh, there are very few people who've done that. So you are in an exclusive club. Do they give you a ring or a jacket or anything? No, but it was it was all downhill after that first night at the Mojo Dojo, though. That was. <laughs> oh, wait a minute! You're telling me the night at the Mojo <laughs> Dojo was was above hearing your name announced as best aircraft and best well best best to show. Well, we got out of there before the police arrived, so I guess I couldn't really say for sure. <laughs> you know that. Uh, uh, in my version of the story, hotel security came by. A single person, plain clothes, very nice. Um, in OTB's uh, a version of the story, it was the Omaha PD. And I think PPP is telling people the SWAT team showed up. So, Well, I remember I, it being really crowded that first Wednesday night. And there must have been 30 people in your room and another 20 spilled out into the hallway. And yeah, and then sounds the, about right. Yeah, yeah. And then and then Dave Goldfinch and the Aussies show up. And, and I remember seeing them. Dang, the first thing Dave did, I saw him when he opened your door, is stick some uh, on the bench sticker over your people <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, then, and then comes in and, and then things really took off from there. So it, it was, was that was quite, a lot of fun. Yeah. It was quite a party. Well, I was, it was nice to see you sit down, see you in person, get to talk to you. Uh, obviously you had a spectacular show with the success that you were, uh, that you'd achieved. And uh, I assume that, you will be back to defend your title in San Marcos. Uh, that's that's the plan, but um, I don't know if I'll have anything big and scratch built for that one. But <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're planning to make the trip and hope for the best. But regardless, it's it's always such a great week at the Nationals. Like you've always said, it's just so much fun. And it's yes. uh, just a time when you can just forget everything else and just spend your time looking at uh, models and, and shopping. So Yeah, it's the best four days of the year every year. 
Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Well, then we we did have one more later. I don't remember if it was Friday night or Saturday night, but uh, you and uh, your travel companion was it Mark Mark Mark, Mark Copeland? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. Came by and it was uh, just you two we'll- guys for a long time. We had a little private conversation and uh, that was kind of nice too so i appreciate you hanging out with us yeah, yeah it was fun it was a lot more subdued that night <laughs> so, yeah that's for sure i remember uh, i think jim bates was there for a while too and so it was, yeah. it was nice meeting all the guys and getting getting able to you know talk to people more one-on-one and you know not just about models so that was fun yes it was well we were we were fortunate to, to actually see that that model in indianapolis Mm. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. When you were there to, uh, and uh, Roscoe Turner show. Yeah. And uh, Dave and I've talked about this a lot. I mean, it, if there was a, a rubric in the competition for, for scoring or whatever, wouldn't that be a novel idea? But, but anyway, <laughs> um, you, you ticked a lot of boxes with that one. Well, you know, above all, it was, it was a scratch build aircraft. There, there's a, there's a lot there in and of itself. Uh, you check the other box that it was a float plane. Uh, I think you kind of go up one in the hierarchy, uh, Maslow's hierarchy of a uh, difficulty of aircraft modeling by, oh, by going yeah. to, going to a float plane over, or, uh, you know, a, a terrestrial based aircraft. And then you checked another box because it was multi-wing and mm-hmm. it didn't just have two. It had three. Yeah. And four engines and four yeah. engines. So, and lozenge camouflage, which yeah. are lozenge decal. Yep. yep. It's, it's one, the whole time I was working on it, I just referred to it as the beast. But before we inter- talk to you about what we really wanted to talk to you about tonight, I've never asked you the question, how long did that take you from beginning to end, from, from actually cutting plastic? Cause I'm sure you spent some time researching, but from cutting plastic to being done with the base, how long did that take you? I think it was roughly 14 months, but it wasn't, it wasn't all working on that one. I worked on several other projects in between just to take a break. So right. I finished, I think another three or four models kind of interspersed in that 14 months. But from the time, um, uh, collecting the references and then drawing up the plans to the time when I, uh, you know, slap the plaque on the front of it, on the base. It was about 14 months, but I, I just couldn't do it all at once. Cause it's just, it's just too much to tackle at once. But, um, actually I was approached at the nationals by, uh, uh Roe Annis, who is, uh, yeah. edits for the yeah. journal there. And he asked me to write an article on the building of that. And I did take pictures, um, during the construction all the way through. So I'm about, uh, about three fourths way reading the article. So I'll get that finished up and attach the photos and send it off and they can edit it down. And, and so it should be appearing in a future issue of the journal too. So, well, I'm looking forward to that. I'm glad you did. A, I'm glad you took all those pictures and all while you were doing it, but B, I'm glad that you have the ability and are agreeable to do that for the journal because I really think that the folks that didn't get to go to the nationals and didn't get to see it in person, seeing it online is one thing, but to be able to read an article laying out all of the steps you took, I think that's going to be really of great interest to to the members. So yeah, I'm glad just- you're doing that. Not every national winner does that. 
Yeah, I was kind of surprised that it was received as well as it was, frankly. it's. Um, I mean, we do projects, we build our models, but we all kind of know where the skeletons are hid in the models, you know? <laughs> sure. And I, I mentioned to Mark once, I said what I really should do, instead of putting a description sheet next to the model about what I did to it and how I did this or that, is is just have a long list of what's wrong with it. <laughs> just put a, like, you know, because you know where all the problems are. And, oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, but what really surprised me to it, it, it did get best aircraft and best of show, but it also got the most popular award. Oh, there's no question. But that, I, that one really shocked me because it's usually something far different from something like that. Yes. So. Well, yeah, that's it's usually, nice. It's, it's usually some great big giant diorama. Right. It's usually something very eye-catching and big. Uh, in fact, this year I would have thought the possibility would have been that shadow box diorama. Oh, that was the, great. The bomber. Oh, it was fantastic. <clears throat> that was my vote for the uh, best fantastic. of show, actually. Yeah, the Lancaster oh, really? Night Bomber. Yeah, yeah. I, that's what I voted for best of show. Yeah, I'll bet we'll see that at the uh, Chicago show in October. But. Yes, I'm sure you will. I would love to get up to Chicago this year, but I don't think we can make it happen. But I'm I'm taking a look at our calendar for next year because Mike and I both both like that show a lot. Oh, this is the figure show, not the right. Not the, the no, the MMSI the show. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, it was we used to, it used to be known as the figure show and I guess in most quarters it still is but it's uh, it's really growing in variety and it, there's a, lot, a wide uh, they have a category called ordnance which is right. for aircraft, armor and ships and that's really grown in recent years quite a bit. And, yeah, there uh, used that used to be a very tiny category. Right. You know, 20 years ago. Yeah, but well, the quality there is just so good to look at and Yeah. Well, we yeah. our club used to caravan up there once a, once a year and go to that thing. And uh, gosh, we haven't done it in ages, Dave. It's yep. going on. It's going on twenty something years for me. But uh, yeah, it's growing yeah, in size too. And the guys that put on that show are so good at it, and they're just such good guys. It's so just a really fun show to go to. Yeah, yeah. I, my, uh, Mike, I think the last time we went, according to the mug that I have on my bench, was nineteen ninety nine. Which was oh boy! Twenty, which was their twenty fifth anniversary. Yeah, oh, I've, got, I've wow. got that mug as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of figures, you wanted to talk. Yeah. Yes, the reason we actually asked you on to be interviewed again is besides winning, uh, building award winning scratch built most popular judges grand award models. In your spare time, you also do a lot of. 72nd scale dioramas, 72nd scale aircraft dioramas, and most, if not all of them, contain figures. All do. And figures in small scale particularly are hard to pull off. And so we kind of wanted to talk to you about your approach to doing that. Okay. Well, you're certainly right about that. And kind of asking for trouble when you go to uh, uh, small scale figures. And I guess by small scale, I mean, 172nd scale primarily, I guess you can get down to HO scale or, or uh, 176, but it's all really kind of in the same neighborhood. But sure. But uh, as you know, um, us 72nd scale modelers are just not catered to very well in as far as figures go. And uh, we've got, um, 
And then you have a, a lot of modelers are just uh, afraid to do figures. And that's kind of another issue too. It's, uh, it's considered sort of a black art in a lot of ways. And, and small scale figures uh, tend to be especially problematic because there just really aren't that many manufacturers that make them. And the ones that do make them usually make them poorly. And, and like I've said before, you usually end up with these things that just don't have good anatomy. They've got, you know, long torsos and short legs and stubby weapons and no detail on the faces. And worst of all, uh, too many of them are made out of soft plastic. Yeah. Yeah. That is a, a curse all its own. Yeah. And it's, uh, so we're just not nearly as lavishly catered to as the guys that are, you know, in 132nd, 135th scales that have just hundreds of options. So, um, I think in 72nd scale, most figures are made for play or wargaming, wargaming. Mm-hmm. like uh, the Airfix figures, you know, I used to get as a kid. And I remember getting the Airfix uh, um, U.S. Marines and, you know, Japanese infantry and trying to stage an Iwo Jima diorama when I was like 10. Yep. <laughs> so, and, uh, but again, you know, you crudely paint them and they're soft plastic and there's really not much you can do with them because soft plastic I don't know. Have either of you guys ever tried to modify a soft plastic figure or just any item? I couldn't get paint to stick to them, much less modify them. Well, actually, I I have because what was I doing? I was I was using for some war gaming when I was a teenager. There's another kid in the neighborhood that we used to to play, and Mm -hmm. there were some articles in the old the British military modeling magazine, and there was about a over the course of about six issues, there were these compartmentalized articles about wargaming the Spanish Civil War. Oh. And this guy was taking these polyethylene or polypropylene figures from Airfix mm-hmm. and Atlantic and whatever. was. This was like in the late 80s, so there wasn't that much out there then. Uh, and he was cutting heads and arms and torsos and then pinning them back together. With, bra- with brass wire to make, you know, cavalry figures. I mean, it was all over the map. And, and I did a little of that. I mean, I'm actually, I never got around to painting them, but I did swap heads and things and it ended up with some, uh, like, Soviet Cossacks. This is small scale? Oh, yeah. This is, this is, this was, were made from like uh, Airfix, I don't know, some either Napoleonic or Civil War cavalry and then some Soviet heads from some other manufacturer, but, but yeah. And it's, it's, it's not. So as a kid, so as a kid, you didn't substitute animal heads or something just for fun. (laughs) No, (laughs) no, but uh, I I think to your point though, it's, it's, it's for, for scale modeling and where you would need something for, with some kind of robustness to it, it's all but impossible. It is. And, and like Dave mentioned, it's hard to get, uh, um, paint to stick to soft plastic too i know like airfix and uh you know hat hat and revel and caesar miniatures pegasus hobbies they're all made of the uh, polyethylene soft plastic and um another thing that's really difficult about those is trying to clean them up i mean the mold lines are just you can take a sharp exacto blade but you end up carving off the mold line but also half the detail in the process and the faces <laughs> are terrible so um, so really for our purposes, we need them in, in hard plastic polystyrene. And uh, as I mentioned before, I think uh, Prizer, uh, the German uh, company, they do a lot of 72nd figures. They do a lot of railroad figures too, but they have a 72nd scale military line that is the very best. And um, 
uh, as far as detail and fidelity of scale and the fineness of the, the weapons and the hands. And, and most importantly, uh, they, they come typically in separate parts, separate heads, separate torsos, arms, and legs. And in their recent uh, sets, they have a lot of German sets, World War II German sets, and they come with separate weapons, which is, is handy for my purposes because most of my dioramas have Americans. So if the weapons are separate, I don't have to carve them off the figure or the, off the pieces. <laughs> and I can take the German weapons and modify them into like a, a Thompson submachine gun or an M1 carbine or something. And then I take the German helmets and I modify them into, uh, you know, M1 steel pots, you know. For, but um, Prizer makes the best. They're hard plastic. You can modify them. And and uh, a lot of people aren't going to want to modify them, I suppose. They can just take them and build them as is and they look great. But since I usually replicate my dioramas from a photograph, I want to represent an exact pose. So they have to be uh, posable. So it's nice to have all those uh, legs and arms separate. And and you can cut an arm at the elbow and you can put in a, a piece of uh, wedge um, plastic rod stock and and you can alter the the, uh, the angle of the arm, and or you can put a wedge in between the, uh, the the legs and the bottom of the torso, and you can get them bending over in one direction or another, or and then uh, things like that. So hard plastic is really um, needed. There aren't many others that do hard plastic 72nd scale figures. I think Mhar makes some really terrible ones in 72nd. Yes. Yeah, and they have a really weird plastic too. It's kind of greasy, but. And the de- the details are terrible. Have you tried it seventy second scale resin figures like CMK or? Uh yes. A couple of resin manufacturers. Yeah, you're getting ahead of me. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I apologize. Go do go so, on. Okay. Um, there's one before we get off of the softer plastic. I mean, which isn't Prizer. There is a company called Orion. I don't know if you heard of them. No, but their their later efforts, they've got some German World War II tankers in 72nd scale, and they are kind of a weird plastic. It's kind of between soft and hard plastic, but the detail is really nice, and the poses are really nice. Um, I've used a few of those. You can cut them up, and you can modify them with a little bit of difficulty, but um, Prizer is probably the best, and and uh, they're getting difficult to find, though. I've gone to the, the trouble to contract Prizer in Germany. Um, and gotten replies from Paul Prizer, which I suspect is the owner, asking him why I can't buy this stuff in the States anymore. And, you know, you get the, the COVID excuses and you get the, well, contact my importers or contact my hobby shops <laughs> over here that have them. So I contact them and they say, no, we can't get them from the importer. And then, <laughs> so I'm not sure what's going on there. So will, really. Will Prizer not sell direct? They won't. I asked them that, and they sell only through their importers. And I think there's some backlog, but I, I got kind of a surprised reaction, like he didn't understand why they shouldn't be available here. And uh, so, I don't know. But they're continually, from their website, look like they're making new products and producing things. We're just not seeing them over here. So mm-hmm. you go on eBay, and you'll find one of their German infantry sets, one of the nicer ones I use for modifying, and it's going for like, you know, 10 times the price or something. But I've, I've stacked up in the past, so I have a, a pretty good collection. Now, have you ever, have you ever tried to buy them from over like Hannett's or one of the European dealers? Yeah, I've, sw- I've searched Hannett's. Uh, they don't have them. And okay. 
I haven't tried. Um, that's probably a good idea, Dave, is maybe go to a, a European online hobby shop and maybe they might be able to get them better. But anyway, hard plastic's the way to go. Yeah, I think Eshi. Yeah, it's about, I was about to say, Eshi had, for a long time, had, had some 70-second scale hard plastic figures. Now, they're all like yep. combat infantry figures, but they, uh, they, they kind of started getting into the soft plastic ones, too. In, in they the did. Eighties. Yeah, they've got some that are hard plastic, and I've got a few of those, too, that I might use for the, the random arms and legs, but the faces are terrible. But um, uh, Prizer has probably the best to use, but... Uh, um, some others, yeah, like Eshi and, and Emahar are kind of crude, but, and like I mentioned, Orion is kind of an in-between plastic. It's pretty good, but, and uh, Dave mentioned CMK. I know that the CMK puts out a lot of figures, like usually aviators and um, right. uh, things like that, which are pretty good. Uh, they tend to be a little fat looking, but, and yes. the facial details tend to be pretty soft. I've used a few um, CMK figures, but I substitute a prizer head for them typically. But uh, that works pretty well because the more detailed it is, the easier it is to paint also. But then there's a third option. We're starting to see some 3D printed figures yes. in 70 second scale. And uh, I saw some at the Nationals that looked pretty good. The anatomy was good and the uh, the detail of the uniforms was good. And I think they're probably modifiable. I know there's some companies like FC Model Trend, uh, Shapeways mm-hmm. Miniatures, um, Paracel Miniatures, and Scale 75 Warfront do some 3D uh, printed figures. And I intend to get some of those and experiment with those too. So, And then just for general, in, in looking at 70-second scale figures, there's actually a pretty useful website. It's called PlasticSoldierReview.com, which has a review of pretty much every 70-second scale figure set out there from all Hmm. these companies. So that's that's always a good one to look at to tell whether you're looking at something that has like soft plastic or hard plastic or uh, they usually have images of the of the, the figures you can click on go down like world war ii american infantry and you'll find a dozen couple dozen listings from different manufacturers and click on one and you can bring it up and you'll you can see the image and of what the figures are which usually makes you go right back but <laughs> but uh it's a good resource though you mentioned painting figures now mm-hmm. i've seen your World War One, thirty fifth scale, beautifully painted figures, but a, a number of uh, our club was actually started by a number of figure modelers, uh, were some of the earliest members and officers, and in talking and interacting with them, one of the points they made is that painting seventy second scale or, or smaller figures is a completely different set of techniques. Mm-hmm. than painting a 35th scale figure. Right. And I've done both. And I'd say the main difference is that you have to concentrate more on contrast. Mm-hmm. And um, it's it's something where you're putting trying to put a lot of detail into a really tiny space. So you need magnification and you need good uh, brushes with nice sharp points and, you know, like I say, get under magnification for it. But there's, um, but again, we'll talk about uh, the painting here coming up. But it's, um, yeah, faces versus the the uniforms themselves. It's kind of a different approach I take, and I'm not saying it's the the only way to do it. But 
it's the one I've found that works for me. But um, what I typically do um, is I'll mount the head up on the uh, toothpick. And I, I, I had to take a, actually, I'll keep the head separate if I'm able to. And I'll drill a hole in the top of the torso for the, the neck. And I'll attach a, a plastic rod to the underside of the neck on the head, ferret in with uh, some sandpaper, and then drill a hole up from the bottom to where the toothpick goes in to hold it. So if you can hold it the head on a toothpick, that's just having access to all sides of it or turn it upside down if you want. That helps a lot. But I'll give it usually an undercoat with like a, a humbral enamel uh, flesh color. I think it's number 61 or 63 or something. But let it dry overnight. And then I do I do faces with uh, actually humbrals. But I use um, what I use for a guide is kind of a simplified guide that uh, you're familiar with the book, How to Paint Dioramas by Shep Payne. Oh, yes. Yeah. He's got a, a really good um, section in there on painting faces. I think it's meant for 35th scale, but yeah. I've applied it to 72nd. And it's kind of a, a simplified approach, but it's really effective where you, you get the get the, the basic uh, flesh tones down. Then you can take a very dark uh, brown and you can come in and just paint uh, right under the eyebrow and in the eye socket and down the side of the nose and right through the middle of the lips and then go back with the flesh color and touch it up just so you get an outline of the deepest parts because what you're looking for is contrast here between the deepest and the highest and if you get if you if it's all kind of similar color it's just going to get lost in the wash it's kind of like painting a 72nd scale aircraft cockpit where you have a small opening to look through and you want right. to kind of exaggerate the contrast so you can actually see it when you look in there. But the same sure. with a tiny face. So get that down. And then Shep's guide after that is you mix up essentially four flesh colors. And I put, um, I use humbrals for these. I uh, use uh, uh, the white and then the humbral flesh. And then the other side I use humbral red-brown and um, flesh. So you've got a, a darker brown that's a little darker than the dark brown you put on initially, a little lighter than the dark brown you put on initially. And you start with the first shadow. And since it's humbrols, you can blend it in with a with a thinner dampened brush. Whereas you can't really do that with acrylics right. because acrylics dry too fast. And then you go back with uh, the lighter highlight and you kind of blend that in on the cheekbones and the forehead. And and. Shep has the faces marked out in his book. There's a whole page just devoted to faces. And then you go back with a little little of the flesh tone mixed with a dab of red just to give a, a rosy cheek and some, get the lips. And, and you can put on a five o'clock shadow and, and you kind of just uh, back and forth with the shadow and the highlight and the shadow and the highlight. I don't know if you've watched any of Night Shift's um, oh, yes. videos on doing figures. Yes. Now, now he kind of layers it up with translucent um, acrylic washes. Right. And it's it's kind of almost a similar approach with with enamels, but because you're working in such a tiny area, you just need such a small amount. So just get a real sharp pointed brush, and then you just kind of touch the da areas right between the two colors, and they blend, and and they go back and forth and back and forth. And see, I'm amazed that you do that with enamels. In, obviously, in in Larger scale figures, uh, you've got two schools. One is an acrylic school and one is, you know, basically two boils. Um, but enamels is, is kind of, you surprised me. I would not have thought that. For the uniforms, I'll use uh, 
I usually put a base coat of, of Humbrol's down in enamel and let it sit for a few days, and then I'll go over it with oil paints. I do all my uniforms with oil paints, and then because that's easier to to blend and add the shadows and the highlights and go back, and it's really forgiving. And and I do things like stowage on armor. You can do with oil paints on top of enamels too, and that works really well. But it's really forgiving. You can go back and forth and uh, kind of work it up, and then come back even the next day and kind of add and subtract to it on the uniform too. So it's uh, it's a uh, that's, but I mount up the figure on a little block, a little one by one by one wood block, the brass pin stuck into one of the legs, which also later serves as the pin that goes into the base and secures it to the base. Sure. And this is after they've been posed and everything. So, but even getting the poses up, you know, I explained about getting the, the, the legs and the arms kind of at different angles and can put on the uniform detail. I use a lot of wine bottle, um, the foil that comes yeah. from wine bottles because you can cut that out and use it for belts and you can use it for uh, um, one of the Battle of Britain dioramas had a, a lot of uh, uh, British uh, RAF and army personnel uh, pushing this 109 and they were all dressed in these great coats, the long coats. And of course I didn't have anything with figures, but I made all those great coats out of wine bottle foil. Hmm. You can just cut them out and cut, you can cut the uh, cut the armholes out, and then kind of put on the back, and then put on the front left and the front side, and then you can kind of blend it in with. Um, there's an there's a, a po- epoxy putty. It's oh, it's called epoxy sculpt. Are you yeah. Familiar with that? Yeah. And can kind of work. You, you kind of it's a two part epoxy putty, and you can kind of run it between your fingers and get a nice ball to work with, and then apply it with a toothpick, and you can you can fill these areas between the the wine uh, bottle foil and the next one that it overlaps where you can fill in where the arm attaches to the torso or um, and then the nice thing about it is it's kind of water activated so you can take a small old brush a paintbrush and you can dip it in water and then just you can blend it you can kind of smooth it and blend it it's like almost like pre pre sanding so when right. it, when it's all dried hard you you can just uh, take a, a few light swipes of sandpaper and you're done. And so epoxy sculpt and wine bottle foil are, it comes in really handy. You talk about mounting the figure on a, like a one by one by one block, but do you, I'm interested, do you hold the figure in one hand and paint with the other? Or do you have the figure secured to like a horizontal surface or a, some sort of holder that you can bend and twist, or are you actually holding both the brush and the figure one in each hand? Um, I'm usually holding the figure in one hand and the brush in the other, but I'm resting, but I'm resting my hand that's holding the figure on the table. And that's, so it's pretty stationary. <laughs> well, back, <laughs> so. back, back to posing and yeah, because Based on our last conversation and on on the podcast before we had any face to face real time, and then at Indy and now the Nationals, we, we've talked quite a bit now about what you do. You know, I'm probably a 35th scale armor modeler, and I'm I'm, I'm pretty well versed in most of the plastic figure conversion techniques for that. I don't do a lot of it because I don't build a lot of dioramas, but uh, I guess where I'm going is. I think there's some dioramas I'd like to do, but I think because of the, uh, for me, I, I, cause I built that little air fix 
Bofors and, and Morris tractor a while back and, and it really came out nice. I didn't do, do too much to it. And, I, and I'm thinking that some of these modern 72nd scale armor kits wouldn't require a whole lot of extra work and I could get more focus on the entire diorama and, and not have to worry about the, the, the fidelity of scale on the model and then trying to match that so much. You, you kind of understand what I'm saying there. Uh, there. There's one I would like to do and it, I won't get into the details of it, but the, but the figures aren't going to be anywhere close to anything that's available. Uh, other than the fact you can find German infantry figures in hard plastic from either Esky or, or Prizer. Um, yeah, go with Prizer. What I'm needing is, is figures that are either crouching or kneeling or, or, or laying in a ditch. And, and where I'm going with this is, is the, the diorama involves a German mortar team, but they're on the march. The, the, the base plates and the mortars on the backpack, the, the, the tubes in a tube carrier, uh, the guys carrying the bipod on a backpack. Uh, but they're all in cover in this trench waiting to, to move further along. Right. Mm-hmm. So Prizer makes some German mortar teams on the March. Mm-hmm. So all these figures with these packs and rigging I want exist, which is fortunate, but they're all upright and walking. <laughs> <laughs> of course. No, that shouldn't stop you. Just uh, you can, you can start with that and just cut them off at the waist and then uh, find some other figure set that has uh, separate legs. Like if you can find some separate legs, you can just cut them at the knees and, and bend them and glue them back together. And it'll look pretty crude at first, but once they're, once the plastic's hardened and dried, you can go in with your knife and you can clean things up and you can go in with the epoxy sculpt and you can, you can smooth things out and you can attach them to the bottom of the torso at any angle you want. And, and then come back in and you can add uh, some uniform detail with the epoxy sculpt again. And before you know it, you've got exactly the pose you want. Just that easy, man. Hear that, Dave? <laughs> it is for him. Uh, Steve, have you ever, you you mentioned it, you model based on photographs. So you have figures in exact poses. Right. So you're, you know, the, the odds are one in a million that you're going to find a figure pre-made that has that exact pose. So you're doing a lot of this cutting and reposing and such. Have you ever worked with one where you just could not get a figure into the pose that was depicted in the photograph? Uh, never. Never? No. Mm-mm. Wow. No, because because if you uh, actually I, at one time. Um, you can actually take, well, you know, you can buy evergreen strip stock in almost any size, right? Like you can get them like uh, a quarter inch by an eighth inch and, you know, lengths and such. Sure. And you can essentially make your own torsos if you want, just take a chunk out and carve it down into a kind of a rough triangle, um, stick some, stick a wire in the bottom for the spine and another piece on the bottom for the. And then more wire and just build up the armature with uh, with wire and then you can put in uh, epoxy epoxy sculpt to build it out and before you know it you've got exactly what you need it's 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 really not as difficult as it sounds I was kind of following Bill Haran's techniques that he uses with his uh, his his armatures when you get something you just can't find anything reasonable or even half reasonable. It's just a matter of sitting down and, and doing it and just start with one leg, you know, just take or one pair of legs. Like Mike mentioned, someone crouching in a ditch, you know, just build the legs, just uh, take a pair of legs, even a standing legs, cut them at the knees, 
cut a wedge out of the back of the knees and bend them and re-glue them. Put them down. Put a wedge in the crotch from the bottom, so the so the the uh, the shins are on the ground and the knees are down and the legs are spread and and then just build that and then just then put the torso on top of that at the angle you want and then attach the arms and pretty soon you're looking at something you like. And nothing worse than a wedge in a crotch. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, knew it he was going to go there. <laughs> Well, we'll get offline on on my little idea. I'll send you a picture, Steve, and uh, yeah, and uh, I might even have some parts. That I've, I might, I've got a lot of extra parts, so maybe I can find something. I'll send them to you if I see something that looks close. <laughs> well, I got to hunt down this mortar kit and not pay forty dollars for it. That's what I have to do. Yeah, I think I think <laughs> I know the one you're talking about too. So, Steve, when I was talking with the figure modelers in our club, who were talking about the differences between. 35th scale and 72nd scale as far as figures go, what they actually recommended was using washes to bring out detail or to, you know, to accentuate detail. Oh, for shadows and such. Right. For using, using a, a wash to get some of the definition in either the face or the uniforms or the hands. But it doesn't sound like you use any sort of wash at all. No, that's that's kind of a simplified approach that a lot of war gamers use because right. they're they're putting together whole armies at a time and and they've got to find some time saving method I think to uh, get them to all look reasonable from a few you know a couple feet away. Gotcha. But, but I, I like to use something that's uh, probably more time consuming but ends up looking I think more realistic and more. Uh, realistic shadows and highlights and such. So now you mentioned prizer, you know, the figures come usually apart in pieces and all. Now in 35th scale company called Hornet makes a huge collection of heads and faces. Yep. I've got a lot of them. Yeah. So as a matter of fact, so do I <laughs> probably not as many as you do, but is there any company out there that does that in 72nd scale? Nope. Um, okay. Sometimes sometimes CMK, I think, has released like the occasional, they'll come with some figures that'll have several optional heads to them. But um, no, I think it's a it's an area of the hobby that I think is, is ripe for someone to jump in and do something like that. Given the popular, or sudden popularity of 72nd scale armor, I would not be surprised to see a parallel development in 72nd scale figures. Right. No, I agree. I, I think there's certainly a market for it. And and if, if Prizer is not going to fill it, I think somebody else needs to step in and do it. And resin or 3D is just, 3D printing is probably just the, just the ticket for it. And I, I think it would sell pretty well, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's really tough finding 72nd figures like we talked where the posing is natural and it's not uh, stiff and, and the, uh, uh, the anatomy's right. And, because you want the figures on a diorama, the the figures is what draws the eye to the scene, and right. and that's what kind of ties everything together. So they they need to be supporting the theme, and they need to be the focus of the diorama because they're the ones that are going to be uh, interacting with the the tank or the aircraft, or they're they're people look for people, and they're going to want to focus on the, the figures, and that's why it's so important to get them looking and 
get the figures even on the base posed where they're looking and pointing in the right direction. And Shep Payne talks about that in his book, you know, how important it is to draw the, the viewer's eye and make it go where you want it to go by using the figures where they're looking or where they're pointing or what they're doing instead of some big diorama where everybody's doing something else off in the corners and it loses the whole focus. But um, it just draws the viewer's eye around the scene. So they need to be supporting the theme. I've got another painting question. Okay. I'll give you a little background. I, I grew up in the eighties playing Dungeons and Dragons a lot. And I painted a lot of lead miniatures as a teenager, okay. young, young teenager. And I actually, I still do it. So I've, 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 I sold all that stuff a long time ago. I, I've actually gone back and repurchased about everything I ever owned when I was a teen and all the stuff <laughs> I wanted when, when I, when I finally had money to buy it. Right. It's all vintage. It's all like pre 1990, all of it. And I've got tons of it. Okay. And, uh, there was a line made by a company called heritage miniatures and there's the dungeon dwellers line. And these figures were some of the very early ones from the 78, 79, 1980, and they're really whimsical and had a lot of charm to them. And they're really popular even today with a lot of these vintage figure painters. Detail on them is, is kind of soft. And one of the guys I follow in, in a particular Facebook group dedicated to these vintage miniatures paints a lot of these. And he, he does a lot of painting of detail that's not even there. And uh, getting back to the My Little Bofors deal, it had some hard plastic styrene figures in, in that set that weren't bad, really. Some of those airfix hard plastic figures that come with some of their ships and, or, you know, their 72nd skill motor patrol boats and things mm -hmm. like that. And some of their, their armor kits really aren't too terrible. Uh, mm -hmm. But these were pretty good, but I ended up having to paint belt loops and pockets and things like that on them. And it, I mm -hmm. thought it came out pretty good. Uh, do, you oh, ever catch, okay. do you ever catch yourself doing things like that? Yeah. Where you're actually painting on, like you say, detail that's not there. Yeah. That's, um, you can, you can kind of cure that up front when you're adding the uniform detail by putting it on with lead foil or epoxy sculpt ahead of time. But, but sometimes after it's painted and you want to put in a, um, maybe kind of replicate a pocket on the back of the pants or something. And sure. You can, yeah, exactly. You can, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you can, uh, yeah, you can use, uh, like shadows and highlights and, and um, a sharp brush and it come out pretty surprising, especially in smaller scales. You can really give a, a good impression of that. And like we were talking about paint earlier, I use oil paints to do the, uh, um, the figures, the uniforms and such. And oil paints tend to dry kind of satin color. Mm -hmm. And then some of the detail that you may have painted on, like you're talking about, uh, can get lost in a, a sheen. So what I do is I actually, when the, it's all done and the oil paint is cured, um, I take tester's dull coat and brush it on and that flattens it out really good. And then you don't get a sheen and all the detail you've painted on starts to look a lot more three dimensional if it's really flat. I, I would agree with that. I, I, I would also say that brush painting that dull coat over something finished in enamels is pretty, pretty bold play. Yeah, I let them cure for a couple of weeks before I do that. <laughs> but but if you work fast, <laughs> but I never airbrush it on because if okay. you airbrush it on, it gets for some reason on figures it gets kind of chalky. And but if you brush it on, it 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 really enriches the color. And I had a disaster once where I I airbrushed on dull coat, and the figures after all this work came out looking kind of chalky and dull, and it was kind of panicking and. But what I did, I went back and on top of that, I brushed on the dull coat and it brought them back to life. So 
not always the last if you if you run into that. Well, that's that's probably my favorite. I would call it the end of the day, Delco. When when I'm putting the final finish on something, I I, I airbrush it almost exclusively, but uh, uh, and I thin the crap out of it. It's like ninety ten to be honest, and and uh, yeah, if you you can get the you can get the chalkiness, but man, that stuff gives such a such a nice flat when it's put yep. on properly. Now I don't have any trouble airbrushing it on like airplane models or anything else. It's just small figures. For some reason it, it gives them a bad look. And when it's airbrushed on for, but for the others, um, airbrushing on aircraft models or tank models, it comes out beautifully. And like you, I, I do dilute it down quite a bit. And um, I used it on that Frederick Schaefen FF60 that's all dull coated at the end, but it's like half thinner and it's half lacquer thinner and half dull coat. <laughs> but it, it came out with kind of a nice satiny finish. But um, but on the figures, um, I always brush on the dull coat. It's a small enough area. I'd never I would never try brushing on dull coat over a, a large flat area because then you're just asking for trouble. But you can do it pretty quickly on figures, and then you get a nice uh, a nice flat finish that doesn't uh, mute the colors. And the detail you're talking about that you might be painting on um, all of a sudden starts to look a lot more three-dimensional than it would if there was any sheen to it. So The one reason I don't like Tester's doll coat is the gold color. And therefore, it sometimes has a tendency to color shift. But if you're working with figures, do you think it enhances the colors you're working with? Because in figures... Yeah, on figures, you're working with, say, skin tones or browns and greens that might actually be enhanced enhanced by a yellow shift. Well, I guess I haven't noticed a yellow shift in the Dell coat I've used. And um, like I say, I, I only brush it on the figures. And, uh, and for the faces and hands, I usually use an acrylic um, satin clear. Gotcha. So on. you you so when you're brushing dull coat, you're brushing it on the figure body, but not the skin tones. And then when you integrate it with the base later, you can start to use more oil paints and pigments and things, you know, to get them kind of dusty and integrated with the base and such. But do you have any other technical topic you want to cover with seventy second scale figures? We talked about the faces and uh, using uh, Shep Payne's guide and the How to Build Dioramas book. I highly recommend that. Highlight edges of everything in seventy second scale so they pop. That's something you can do with. Uh, the edges of uniforms, um, the edges of cuffs and collars, uh, the top edge of belts. If you get a sharp, a sharp brush and some uh, oil paint, which you can put on in just ultra thin layers, but it, you can get a real nice edge on it. So again, like in seventy second scale, you need to kind of exaggerate details a little bit, and and you want to kind of highlight the edges of everything so it kind of pops and. And uh, same with uh, shadows and highlights when you're painting those. I would tend to maybe exaggerate the highlights and the shadows a little bit because you're going for a little more contrast. And uh, I've done 35th scale figures too. I don't do those anymore, but that's why Dave mentioned about the hornet heads. I've got tons of hornet heads. If you want some, I can get some for you because <laughs> I've got lots of them. But I don't build that scale anymore, man. <laughs> but, but, um, you should. You, you are very talented. Yeah, you? maybe someday. Your World War One stuff is particularly inspiring. 
Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's it's. I've kind of stayed with World War One aircraft, uh, seventy second scale, on and off uh, for a while, and I've got several areas of interest. That's one of them: World War One, seventy second scale, German and Austria Hungarian, and World War Two Japanese aircraft, World War Two German aircraft, and lately, seventy um, second scale uh, crash dioramas. So, and Dave set me on to a an idea for one I might uh, got online for next year. I think that's the, uh, <laughs> the, um, the ghost bomber of Cambridge. Yes. Oh God. That. Dave's going to go around. I told him to build that. I told him to build that. <laughs> damn straight. I am. You, yeah. <laughs> I can tell you, hell I'll have that tattooed on my damn forehead if he does it. <laughs> but it was a great idea. I thought, yeah, this, this really fits the I bill. Had, so. I had never heard that story. And then it was one of those Mark Felton production things. And the fact that the aircraft came down pretty much intact is just perfect for, for, for that kind of diorama. Yeah. I looked it up. I actually took some still photos off the video on YouTube. Yeah. Just using a thing called snip and sketch that you can yeah. just, just grab it off there. But the, the, the tricky part about that one is a deal. It's a deal two seventeen. I think it's an M, but yes. it's got um, the forward fuselage, which is all glazed, is is intact, but it's it looks like the structure behind the cockpit's kind of broken, so it's kind of yes. an angle a little bit. Yeah. So that that might be a little tricky, but that just well, adds to the fun, right? If you <laughs> well, if you ever interested in that, uh, there was on seventy second scale aircraft forum. Uh, it's actually a pinned uh, uh, topic somewhere where this particular modeler was fascinated with that version of the DO-217, which okay. is a little hard to pull off. Yep. And he he went through all of the modifications okay. that you need to do. I think it was the Etelary kit. Yeah, and that's an oldie. Yes, yes. And life's and too short went, for crappy kits, you said. Yeah, he went through... <laughs> Yes, but but that, that's that's for Dave. That's a Dave. Yeah, that's for me. Okay. That's for a mere mortal. You, any man who scratch builds a triplane float plane with with four way, engines. A, yeah, with four engines. By the way, I wanted to ask you, how long did it take to train the spider to do the rigging on that darn thing? Oh, that was that was a task, but um, you get the right material, and it's it's not. I was going to ask you what is the right material because I, from looking at it, could not figure out what you rigged that with. <clears throat> well, it's it's actually point zero zero five inch stainless steel straight wire. I wondered if it was cut to length. Yes, cut to length. Use a um, you can use a compass to do your measuring. Yeah. And then you can cut it. I use old X-Acto knife blades on uh, um, glass, glass at work or a ceramic tile. And, gotcha. and then you can take, it comes as a kind of a bright steel color, but you can, you can run it underneath a black Sharpie and a newspaper, kind of run it underneath, pull it through. Yeah. And it comes out with kind of a nice, um, kind of a bluish gray kind of tint to it, which is kind of just right. And uh, so I, I, it took me forever to find a source for that stuff, and finally found it. It was uh, it's on the Component Supply Company, but uh, it took me a long time to find it. But it's um, I can send you the link if you want. But um, it used to be available through Small Parts Inc. Remember that company? Yes. And I don't think they exist anymore, or I think they do, but they carry a lot of weird stuff now, <laughs> and and nothing like that. So. 
But by the yeah, way, that's- you talked about a world interest in World War One aircraft in seventy second scale, and you know mm-hmm. I am a huge seventy second scale fan. Mm-hmm. But World War One single engine aircraft in seventy second scale, those things are amazingly small. I mean, they are. Yeah, I can tiny. see why somebody goes to wing nut wings 30 second scale <laughs> for something like that. Yeah. You can actually see it. Yeah, <laughs> so. exactly. But those kits have details as small as everything on that 70 second scale kit and, and by the thousands. <laughs> yes. There, there, there is some truth to that. There, there is some truth to that, but they're not major components at that point. But if you want to, Close out the discussion on the small-scale figures. There's um, some references I could recommend. Sure. Absolutely, please. Then I've got one thing I'll, I'll let you talk about after that. So Okay. There's uh, uh, just four four books that I'd recommend that it's pretty much all you need. Let's see, I've got probably a dozen, but these are the only four I still consult. Um, of course, How to Build Dioramas by Shep Payne. That's a classic. The Bible. And I, I use, yeah, I use that primarily for uh, painting faces, and I still consult it today when i when i line up you know six to ten faces to paint you know mounted up on toothpicks and my wife makes fun of me for that (laughs) but um, i'll pull that book out and i'll turn to the page and you know hold it down and just remind myself of the the step-by-step procedure and it tends to work every time so that's probably my top pick and uh um, Shep Payne has another book that he did. Uh, it was for a fine scale model or a soft cover, just like how to build dioramas. It's called, um, building and painting scale figures. Yeah. And it's, uh, got a 1993 date on it, but I think fine skills republished it, but, um, and it deals with mostly larger scale figures, but a lot of the techniques are the same. Um, a third one, uh, military modeling masterclass by Bill Haran. 1994. That's excellent. And that, uh, that shows you how to modify figures. Again, he deals with 35th scale, primarily 32nd scale, but the techniques um, are adaptable. And I'd recommend that for inspiration, if nothing else. And then probably lastly, there's a kind of an oddball book I found on Amazon called uh, Dynamic Wrinkles and Drapery. It's uh, by an author named uh, Hogarth, uh, 1995. I think it's been republished since, but what that does, it's got examples of how clothing wrinkles when you move certain ways, and it's it's all drawings, but it shows how the wrinkles go if you're twisting or bending or reaching. So when you're recreating wrinkles with epoxy sculpt and maybe a little toothpick tool that you've made, it's easy to look at that and just make sure you get the angles right, and and uh, so oh, that yeah. works. That works uh, really well. Instead, instead uh, of making up something that doesn't make any sense when you're done. Yeah. And some of my early stuff, I'd come in and look at some of the wrinkles and I think, well, that doesn't look right. So I got that, <laughs> I got that book and it, it does help. It's, it's, some of it's obvious, but some of it's uh, really helpful. So is it a figure modeling book or was it no. just interested it's in like wrinkles? Art, art book? It's exactly, Mike. It's it's an art book, but it's it's it serves our purposes perfectly. So you can find uh, the kind of, you know, the pose someone reaching or pointing or bending, and you know, if you're looking to, well, how's this shirt going to look when he reaches that way? And and you can stand in front of the mirror and try and do it, but that's, <laughs> you know, it doesn't work real well. Well, God bless the author that put that together. Yeah, really. Yeah. 
but that's that's a good book. I'm sure that sold tens of copies. Yeah, I, I'm probably I bought. Uh, number you might eight, be surprised. I, yeah, that's I think right. I bought number eight. Yeah, for, for, <laughs> so. for, for sculptors and painters, that's probably that may be a popular book. Actually, it may be. It might be. Um, I think it is. Yeah. Before Mike asks his question, you you mentioned tools, and you keep mentioning toothpicks. Do you actually use any other? tools when you're sculpting on those small scale figures like uh silicone brushes or or um dental picks or or anything like that or is it mainly uh toothpicks that maybe you carve and cut as needed yeah it's it's uh like nature nature always says I, I i try and find the ghetto solution <laughs> to whatever i'm working on that doesn't cost an arm and a leg so gotcha. um, a lot of the materials I use, Apoxy Sculpt, I love that stuff. Um, yeah. There's another by AK. It's a, it's like a, a blue-green um, ribbon called yes. AK Green Power by by AK, and that's kind of the same as like Nidatite. Um, toothpicks, yeah, I sharpen toothpicks. You can take uh, – because they're made of nice hardwood. I use them for mounting up the heads, and I use them for uh, – I sand them to a point, and I actually – I have one toothpick I use for cleaning my airbrush tip. I have it sanded out to a really fine point. And since it's a hardwood, you can push it through and twist it around in the tip and you won't hurt the airbrush tip. But that's a different story. But yeah, I, I use a lot of toothpicks because it's, uh, it's, it's really good for the scale for imparting wrinkles in the uh, epoxy sculpt or the other. Um, Humbrol paints, like I say, I use those for faces and the undercoats on the rest of the uniform. Uh, oil paints I use for uh, all equipment and clothing and uh, other things like uh, stowage or other items around the diorama. We talked about the small wood blocks that with the uh, the figure with the pin and the leg, and I'll mount them up on the block for painting, leaving about a half inch or more exposed for attaching to the base. Uh, I talked about Tester's dull coat um, and the uh, acrylic satin I use on the flesh areas. Oh, there's one. There's one. Uh, um, there's a clear plastic card. It's maybe two by three inches. It's uh, called the scale card. Yes, I actually um, own one of those. Okay, so you know what I'm talking about. It's it's made for all scales. Now you can use it, Dave. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> and that's got that's good for checking anatomy at the scale you're working at, and it's got dimensions for typical men, women, and a one-year-old child. So, so those are all pretty useful. The biggest thing is, you know, getting the. Uh, I guess one other thing is, you know, just regular old tape. And when you're doing figures for a diorama, a lot of times the figures are interacting with each other. They're like touching each other. One might be, uh, um, uh, like together, they're they're pushing an airplane and there's another man in back of them pushing them, but they all have to be touching each other. So I often will use, uh, you use tape to tape them together to make sure they're all interacting together like they should before I finalize the pose. And that, that helps too, because you don't want to get them all painted and looking great and then have them, they don't work together when you put them on the base. So if you look at the, the kit releases in 72nd scale over the last three or four years, you know, I've been paying attention since we started the podcast. So since 2020, for sure, uh, in, in all, in all media, 3d print resin and this figures, subject matter, aircraft, armor, everything. Mm -hmm. I, I think we're seeing a little, a little bit of a Renaissance in that scale. And I, I think 
you know, you, you get you get kits like uh, the Arma Hobbies P fifty one, the the Flyhawk Dauntless. The, these kits coming out now in seventy second scale, and in armor would be like a Flyhawk uh, King Tiger Tiger two, and there's there's right. a pan, there's a Panther tank that came out by somebody in that scale. Uh, Vespid yeah. models, yeah. Vespid models, yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. And, I've and, got a few of them. Yeah, s- somebody built one, didn't you? Wasn't that a Panther that you did in the winter scene? Um, yeah, it's actually, I've, I've got another one that I built in a, a diorama. So, but that, yeah, Vespid models, it's, it's, it's a whole new world for 72nd scale armor. Uh, the, the night, the, uh, Flyhawk, I've got their King Tiger, which is t- tremendous looking kit. And you've got the Vespid Panthers. And, uh, I think you're right, Mike. I think it's kind of the leading edge of something maybe bigger that we're going to see a lot of follow up to hopefully with with some uh, figures. Well, that, that'd be great. But I guess where I was going with it, it ultimately is, and I'm, I'm sure we'll get a demonstration of your, your fine humility here, but uh, you know, with, with the folks I, I interact with online and, and the other podcasts, there's, there's a little bit of, of gobsmacking going on with the fact that uh, a 72nd scale aircraft, won best of show at IPMS national convention. And, and it's, it's got a lot of attention. I, I just wonder if you could just comment a little bit about on, and you did a little bit already, but uh, maybe we can tighten it up a little bit. What do you think the state of the scale is and, and it's perception in the hobby and, and what's going to be going happening going forward. Cause I, I think, I, I think all the kit releases and things that open some eyes and I got some people interesting, interested and, and certainly the, the work you've done and, and have demonstrated in the last, couple of, of uh, national conventions and, and all the invitation invitationals in between have, have certainly got some folks attention that uh, th- this scale has a lot of merit and uh, you can do a lot of things in a small space. Yeah. I think, uh, I think maybe like what Wingnut wings did for world war one modeling. I think mm-hmm. I'm hoping that maybe Arma hobbies and uh, Flyhawk and Vespid models and IBG and, and uh, those kind of things, I'm hoping that um, their tremendous releases, I think, may be doing the same thing for 72nd scale. And we've got other really tremendous 72nd scale modelers out there, like uh, some of my heroes, like uh, Barry Numeric and uh, Harvey Lowe and uh, uh, Joe Youngerman uh, made a yeah. big splash at the Nats this year. He had some tremendous models. And I think we're, we're seeing um, more and more people drawn to the scale and, uh, because of people like that and because of a lot of these uh, really nice releases now, like ICM has came out with a really beautiful Dorner DO-17Z a couple yep. of years ago. And they're hopefully going to bring out their ICM, ICM Sally this year if yes. Russia doesn't yes. interfere for too much in that. From, from your lips to God's ears, I have both the Ravel Sally and the MPM Sally, and I am waiting for ICM to get both versions of the Sally out. Yep. Mm-hmm. I built the old Ravel one a while back, and and I had the MPM one. Um, I sold it on eBay, though. But I don't blame you. <laughs> every time I'd pull it out, it just looks, oh, this looks like too much work. I just can't yes. do it. Well, the, the, the Ravel one was really nice given its age and when it came out. I mean, it was surprisingly nice. It was. I mean, they came out with a really nice, uh, well, like you say, the Sally, and they had a nice uh, Francis. And uh, yeah, got it. Yep. 
and uh yeah, and some, Helen. yeah and uh and then of course Asagawa filled in some of the some of those nice areas with a, a beautiful Nell and a, a new Helen and a late Betty and still need an early Betty though. Yes. But um yeah, I think but I think with these manufacturers coming out with with really tremendous kits and I think Arma Hobby's P fifty one B C actually won a kit of the year award last year and because yes. it's such a beautiful kit and they also came out with that gorgeous um F um that Wildcat uh prior to that. My my understanding is now you know somebody be out there can check me. My understanding is Arma says the new KI eighty four mm-hmm. outsold the P fifty one BC. Oh boy, I find that hard to believe. So do I, given how long we have waited for a P fifty one BC. But apparently that uh, KI eighty four is wildly popular. Well, I'm I'm going to pick one up or two. <laughs> But <laughs> I got two. Yeah, I did. I did jump on that IBG uh, Focke-Wulf 190 D9. I picked up like four of those. Yeah, I've, I've got several myself. But yeah, I'm hoping it's going to cause a resurgence, uh, like Mike was saying, in the hobby, not only in aircraft, but in 72nd scale armor, too. And that's another one of my areas of interest is uh, 72nd scale German armor. And yeah. I've been doing more dioramas on that as well. So, um but the Vespid models one was just gorgeous. It's just well, before you leave us, what do you happen to be working on right now? What's on my bench? Yes, give 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 us a preview of what's going to win at the nationals next. <laughs> now, at the risk of making Dave ill, <laughs> one of them is the uh, Matchbox HE one fifteen. All right. Oh, See, life Dave's <laughs> so- life's not too short. No. It, it, Okay, the sad thing about this is he sent me a picture of, like, the inside two inches of part of the fuselage, and I was able to identify the kit That's from right. that photograph. <laughs> and he's, he's he's put more scratch build into it than all your model builds combined. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> that is assured. That is 100% assured. Well, let's let well, him finish. <laughs> well, the HE-115's in the paint shop right now. It's it's all together. I rescribed the whole damn thing, and I actually riveted it. Ooh, got it. Bought it. Oh, Rosie, the riveter. Lord. It's like, what are you doing? to? It's like what you're, what you're saying. What are you doing to get better? Yeah. Yep. So every pair of models I do, I want to do something different and learn a new technique. So I'm riveting... Are you going to rivet from here on out? Because Barry Numeric, a couple of Barry never riveted his models, and then about this is probably three or four years ago. Barry, if you're listening, you can write in and tell us when it actually was. He decided to, you know, a su- surprise, surprise, he was building a 109, um, <laughs> and he decided to rivet it, and mm-hmm. he did, and just became utterly sold immediately on the technique to the point where he said on 72nd scale forum, I'm, I will rivet every model from here on out. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's the master at it too. It's yeah. just, Oh, yeah, it's unbelievable. And, yeah. I've actually got uh, Barry's one or nines are rotating on my desktop this last few weeks. I can understand why, but, uh, but are you that sold on riveting having done it? Actually, he, he's the one that clued me into it, and he's the one that, that I decided I'd start it. And so I, he recommended the Rosie the Riveter, um, the, the point four uh, right. spacing of the, 
thing. So I, I bought one. I got one from UMM Hobbies, yes. and uh, it it does work beautifully. I, I had a, another riveter that I got from the Trumpeter riveter, which is a larger yeah. wheel. It's just yeah. trash, though. It just yes. Yeah, so I, I I picked up this one and it does. I riveted the whole HE one fifteen with it. Did and, you have uh, any trouble with the learning curve of riveting? Um, a little bit. I practiced at first. You know, I got some some old paint mules out and and I'd practice. And at the nationals, I stocked up on some tools too. And there was um, uh, a tool guy that sold a uh, a couple different wraparound stainless steel guides for things like yes. riveting and and uh, scribing. So I picked up some of that. And that seems to help. Um, but what helps the most is there's a, uh, a scribing tape out there by some Japanese company. It comes in three and six millimeters. And you can wrap that around and it sticks. And it's good for a couple uses before it gets not tacky enough to stick anymore. But that makes for a good guide for the riveter. Is it like and Dymo tape or is it? It's like that. It's about the same, maybe not quite as thick, but it's clear, gotcha. which helps a little bit. And it's, uh, I think, I think it's on, uh, uh, John Miller's website, Dr. Strangebrush. Okay. I think, I think he's got some of that there. He's got the UMM, UMM tools, the scribers right. too, which are great. So, uh, and I've got some of that stuff from him too. And, but so I've been using that and that was my plan to get better on these two. And I'm also, I always build two at a time. So I'm building another, a diorama, which is the, uh, it's the Heller, um, Arado 196. All right. <laughs> Except that's gonna be that's gonna be busted up at sea and sinking. Well, mine won't, but I'll, I'll be inspired nonetheless. <laughs> Is it from a photograph? Uh, no, this one I'm just kind of kind of winging it. That'll be a first. But um, I'm riveting. Interesting. Yeah, I'm riveting that thing. I'll send you mine. You rivet it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the old Heller kit, so that one's almost as old as the Matchbox 115, but. But I'm kind of lazy. Like, I like to spray them. The, so I picked a two. I always pick a pair that has the same colors so I can airbrush them both at the same time. Yeah. Because I hate cleaning the airbrush and I hate getting set up twice for different colors. So, <laughs> so Very that's what's on my bench. That. So how, how's the ball coming there, Dave, or, uh, Mike? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm out seeking catapult cable. And I, I made that claim or that announcement in the last episode. And I think I'm up to about eight replies that I've got to sort through and see which ones have merit and which ones maybe don't, don't. What and kind of cable are you looking for? It's, it's gotta be like four tenths of a millimeter in diameter, but it's gotta be twisted like a steel cable. So how thin would it look in 70 second? Uh, well, I'm not sure how to, how to, how to convert that. It's, 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 so it's a, it's like it's a point, point, point 0.4 millimeters in real life. It's going to be a, it's got, there's a, what you should go back and look at one of Night Shift's videos where he's making cable for tanks and he takes a couple electrical wire strands that he's cut out of electrical wire. I, I've done that. The, the problem is you, you you can't get the tension in it. You need gluing it and stretching it through all the pulleys of the catapult to, to get all the... Oh, I see. All, so it really needs to be like a cotton or a nylon thread or even something elastic. But I've got oh. some good suggestions from a whole lot of people that I got to sort through. <laughs> okay. So. All right. Well, good luck. He's deep into the engineering now. I am. Yeah. Okay. Probably the probably the nylon would work best because you don't have the furries on it. Exactly. That's, that's exactly right. Well, Steve, we appreciate you coming on with us again. It was great hanging out with you in Omaha, and we're going to have you on again for some something, I'm sure. But, uh, <laughs> okay. Absolutely. Well, it's always fun with you guys. Look forward to seeing you in San Marcos. 
Well, Dave, that was a lot of fun. That was. Uh, color me color me shocked at what he does, how he does it. Every conversation I have with Steve, I'm A, more in all, awe of his skill, B, more impressed by what a a open and generous modeler he is. He will sit there and explain techniques and, and what he does and how he accomplishes it. And it is, and that's the way most modelers are. When you walk up to them and you walk up to them, you know, they're next to their model and you say, that's awesome. How did you do this? Or what did you use for this? Most modelers are more than willing to share how they got what they learned. Uh, and Steve is the exemplar of that. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing that somebody can be that nice and that sharing and also have that level of skill. Well, I'm sure he's going to be a staple at the Mojo Dojo at national conventions. To come. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> we treat the man right. And, uh, and he deserves it. And his protege there, uh, Yes, Mr. Mark. Copeland uh, right. is, is uh, Mr. Copeland and I are uh, exchanging emails on a regular basis, and things may develop. All right. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed that. That was that was a lot of fun. Yes, it was. It was great fun for Mike and I, and you all get to come along for the ride. Mike, uh, I assume you're getting toward the end of your modeling fluid. I'm certainly getting toward the end of mine. Well, I I did get to the end of mine. Cold check pills. We'll play on the words of cold check, but you know, give you give you a dollar to tell me how it's spelled. K O L. No. S H A C K. Just the check part. <laughs> <laughs> so here's it's not bad. I'm I'm gonna blue stallion here local in Lexington um, brews almost entirely German style beers. Right now. A pills is a is of Czech origin, but it kind of bleeds over pretty hard into yeah. German styling. So that's why they brew this. Uh, the thing is, most real, and, and I tell you, they, they've got a, a Dunkel that I love, and their Hefeweizen is out of this world. Oh, I um, need to pick that up because I am a Hefeweizen whore. I love that stuff. This one, I, I think it's it, it's interesting because. Three Floyds makes a, a pills and they nail it. Now what I mean yeah. by they nail it, things like check far. Yes. Uh, Pilsner or Kell. Yep. Even the, even like a German, you know, a mass market German, a St. Pauli girl. Right. Or, or a Heineken from, from Holland. These beers have a characteristic sulfur finish to them. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people call that skunky, but that's not really what a skunky beer is. If you've had a skunk beer, it doesn't taste like that. It tastes like a right. hundred times worse than that. Yep. Um, this beer does not have that. Now, some people might say that's an improvement, but if they're going to stick with their authentic styling, I think uh, they may need to investigate, investigate the, uh, the proof coming out of uh, three Floyds because uh, somehow they've, they've figured it out. Well, you know, we love our three Floyds, man. Hopefully, they'll show us some love back at some point. I do too, man. Well, tell me how that bourbon's working for you, Dave. Uh, this may get my Kentucky Colonel status revoked, but I will tell you, this is a darn nice bourbon. 86 proof. It's smooth, not uh, heat-wise. There's not an offensive heat. 
You would think, of course, Iowa, they grow a lot of corn. Got to use some of it. Perfect use for it is bourbon. There's some sort of spice note on the palate. I don't want to say cinnamon because it's not cinnamon, but it's, it's something. It's probably the rye. It's got rye in it. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, you can you can taste that rye note. Man, it's just drinkable as all get out. I, I mean, again, all hail to my Kentucky bourbons, but this is certainly a very nice drinkable bourbon. Great modeling fluid. Hats all off right. to the hats off to the guys in Iowa. We're getting down to the end of the episode here. Uh, do you have any shout outs? Well, I've got a general shout out. Okay. I want to shout out everybody who's chimed back at us for uh, my little catapult cabling problem. I, that just gets right back to what what makes this so much fun. I mean, yeah, I had an, I had an issue. I was grousing about it, and uh, half dozen people come to the rescue. And sure, so, there's a solution in there somewhere. They're not all going to be, but uh, collectively, they're going to save the day. I've got two shout outs. Um, my first shout out is to our to our guest tonight. Uh, Steve is, as I said before, a really great modeler. And on top of that, or maybe more importantly than that, a really nice person, a good human being. And every time Mike and I sit down and talk with him, whether it be a person in person at uh, Invitational or National or interview him for the podcast, it's always nothing but a pleasant experience that I come away with having learned a number of things. So I want to shout out Steve and say thank you, and I appreciate you coming on and, and being a guest. And your other one? My other shout out is to um, Dr. John Miller, our sponsor of Model Paint Solutions. John has not only done us solid by uh, you know, being able to order and quickly get items from him, uh, but because of the fact that our listeners have done so. I know that the service he gives us isn't just because of the fact that we have a relationship with him. Uh, he gives that same quality service to all of the folks who interact with him and, and uh, order from him. That doesn't surprise me because John is genuinely a nice guy who who values the interactions he has with other modelers. So I just want to shout out uh, John for providing great customer service. Well, all right, Dave. Typically, when we have one like this, it gets along with a good, great guest. So Dave, as they always say, so many kids, so little time. You take it easy.